Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brits. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm great. I can do that, too, you know. I like it. I like it. I got to tell you, uh, I had a good time this past week, but before we talk about this past week, let's talk about this week. Shout out to Conan and Disco Inferno for having me on their podcast. Keep it at 100. Check it out this week. It's over at podcast one. Uh, you're going to dig what they're doing over there. They don't give a shit, man. They are pulling all kinds of punches. Uh, you will laugh. You'll dig it. Check it out. Keeping it 100. Uh, and funk it. Who to thunk it, right? You're getting along with Conan. What's going on, man? Uh, you were telling I'm me not this- only getting along. No, hang on. Not only getting along with him. I actually like Conan now that I've actually spoken to him and, and that we talk and uh, you know have a relationship. He's uh, actually I like Conan. Well, so there you go. Uh, you never know in wrestling. Never say never. And how about this for never say never? I want to shout out Roger from the twenty three hundred arena for his hospitality this past weekend. I got to take Bruce to the old ECW arena for the very first time. Uh, Bruce, whether you were a fan or not, it had to be kind of cool to see one of the more famous buildings in wrestling history. What did you think? I thought that it was a whole lot cleaner than I expected it to be. It was nice to actually walk in no matter what my feelings are on ECW and everything else, man. It's history. And it was great. It was nice to go in. And they rolled out the red carpet for us. And uh, shout out to them as well. Thanks for doing that for us. Appreciate it. Uh, Speaking of red carpet, man, we got VIP treatment from Tom and the crew at TLA in Philly. Such an awesome facility and even better staff. We had a great time. The Blue Meanie joined us for our live show this past weekend. And he told the most hilarious story about Mick Foley and maybe the potential cause of that JBL incident back at One Night Stand. Uh, Manny is just an awesome guy, and it was pretty cool to meet Mrs. Manny, too. But I came away from it thinking, Bruce, he's way too nice of a guy to be in the wrestling business, right? Well, yeah, and how about him telling the story when we were in the dressing room about that moment when he got the call from me? I had forgotten that, but that was kind of surreal that changed his life for him to come and work at the WWF at the time and him taking care of his grandmother. Yeah, Blue Meanie, Brian Heffron, great guy, wonderful human being. And the crowd was just awesome. It's probably the most fun I've had at a live show. The crowd really got our humor. It was a blast. Uh, I've always thought that Philly fans were some of the most fun wrestling fans around, and they proved it this past weekend for us. Uh, Maybe not so much for Battleground, but hey, maybe we put on a better show. What would you think, Bruce? Well, they got a new chant, STW, STW. 
STW. I loved the Philly crowd. I explained why I loved the Philadelphia crowd because of their passion. And they showed it to us last Sunday. And hey, from Brother Love back to the city of brotherly love, thank you again. All right, Bruce. So let's get into it. SummerSlam 2000 won the poll this week. And, and I've got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed. I was really hoping that 1997 or 90 would win. 97 is one of my very favorite years in wrestling to cover and just talk about and freestyle. Uh, but 1990 is what I grew up on. So I was really hoping one of those would win. And I thought it might be fun to bust on you for 1995, but the people have spoken. They wanted SummerSlam 2000 and it's no wonder business was at an all time high here. It's pretty impressive what you guys were accomplishing in 2000. And what's most interesting to me is a lot of people say, oh, wrestling was hotter than ever, but that's not really the case. WCW is on its way to his biggest losses ever. ECW is on national TV, but they're about to lose that deal. Uh, they're kind of both circling the drain and the WWF is coming out on top. Is 2000 one of the most crucial years in wrestling history, in your opinion, Bruce? The word would probably be pivotal. And it was a time that one company took a right while the other one took a left and kind of went down a dead-end highway, so to speak. So it was a point in time where the audience made a choice and they were choosing the WWF at the time. Well, let's set the stage for this pay-per-view. We're coming off Fully Loaded, which was uh, in July of 2000, of course. And as we said, it's an interesting time in the WWF. You know, business is great. Uh, but Stone Cold Steve Austin is their biggest star, and he's on the sidelines with an injury. So the WWF is very much trying to figure out where everyone fits in the interim. Uh, Fully Loaded was a show that featured what they called a triple main event. And the way they did this is three established top-tier guys against three relatively new guys on top. Of course, the established guys got the win. We saw The Rock go over Chris Benoit. Triple H got the W over Chris Jericho. And the undertaker was victorious against Kurt Angle. But even though they lost, all the losers come away looking pretty strong. And Bruce, this is a big deal, uh, especially at this time in the career for guys like Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho, and Chris Benoit, is it not? It is, and it's simply an opportunity for them to step out and step up into the spotlight. And by putting them, as you said, with with rock and with undertaker and with triple H it enables the spotlight to be put on them and they shined and they were able to step up and hang with all of those guys. So definitely it helped them out big time. Uh, Wade Keller had this to say in the torch, more important to the WWF is how Jericho and Benoit fared and what the perception of them was after the pay-per-view triple H and Jericho had a match of the year candidate. Jericho has raised his stock by well rising to the occasion. He knew he had his critics within the company who were waiting to see him show signs of a serious personality. While Angle is at a point in his career where he can be entertaining as a goofball comedic character, the time had come for Jericho to move into a money-drawing position. He did that with his performance on Sunday night. Now, of course, the referencing fully loaded here. Uh, Bruce, do you think Jericho already had his critics by this point? He's written about it in his book that he felt like he didn't get off to the best start. Uh, there's lots of rumor and innuendo that Vince McMahon crawled his ass in the locker room one day uh, in front of everyone, and it just wasn't really uh, a honeymoon at first for Jericho in the WWF. What can you say about the way people in the office felt about him in the summer of 2000? 
in the summer of 2000, I think everyone saw Chris Jericho as a guy that was stepping up and a guy that could be one of the next big megastars because without a doubt, yes, Jericho, when he first came in, he had a lot of people that looked at him when he got there said, Oh my God, he's so small. Um, is he really going to fit in here? Will he be able to hang with our guys? He doesn't fit, you know, on the, the rock stuff that they did from the very first interview. You're talking about last time I saw you, you were in the ring, some guy named Hooventude. Didn't help Jericho at all. And I think that he had his critics, and Chris had an uphill battle. But I do believe that Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, those two in particular, their in-ring work, their solid performance every single night is what got them noticed. Kurt Angle, for me, Kurt Angle had it all almost from day one. So I, I do take a bit of exception to the comedic relief of Kurt Angle. I think Kurt Angle had it all, was an entertaining son of a bitch, and could do everything in the ring. Do you think Vince McMahon saw him as being a money player from day one, Kurt Angle, I mean? I think, without a doubt, positively, yes. Uh, Wade really heaped the praise on Triple H after that show. He said... Meanwhile, Triple H is getting praise heaped on him from many circles for continuing his streak of excellent pay-per-view main events. Be it Mick Foley, The Rock, or Chris Jericho, he has been not just a steady main eventer, but now a borderline spectacular main eventer. He still isn't flashy, but he is so consistently smart in everything he does in the ring that even without the high spots of a Hardy Boys match, he captures the emotions of fans from bell to bell. It is a 180-degree turnaround for him, too, because three years ago, the rap on him was that he was too methodical and calculated in his moves and thus lulled fans into being passive towards his matches. That is no longer the case. I find this interesting because so many people listening to this remember that stretch when the common thinking amongst wrestling fans was that Triple H was boring and not entertaining. And I don't think all of them think of that as being 96, 97, so much as they think of that being mid two thousands. But at this point he had certainly uh, earned the praise of the Wade Keller types. When do you remember Vince McMahon starting to see triple H as the guy, not just, you know, Hey, he'll do, but he is up here competing with the rock and stone cold at that really tippy top level. The first time that triple H won the title was probably the first time that Vince really saw him step up and felt that he's going to be a top guy. And as I've said before, Vince didn't always think that Hunter was going to be a top guy felt that he was a mid card performer at best, but there was that period in the late nineties in Vince's eyes that he did step up. And I don't think Vince ever saw him as that plotting, boring, what Wade Keller and Dave Meltzer and those types, uh, felt. I think that this was now a time where Hunter, you saw what they saw now was a consistency, right? They saw a consistency in his work and the fact that he could go out night after night and pay-per-view after pay-per-view and consistently deliver one of the best matches on the card. Let me ask you this, um, and, and people get mad at me when I do this sometimes, but I can't help myself. What was your favorite Triple H match around this time? Do you remember? Does one really stick out from like 98? Yeah, him 90? and Jericho. Well, during this time, him and Jericho. I thought, I, thought that Chris, I thought that Chris Jericho and Triple H, and during this time, I felt that Hunter really helped make Jericho and take him to the next level. 
Uh, I recommend, you know, if you're looking for a specific match to see from Triple H in 2000, you go watch the Royal Rumble 2000. He had a phenomenal match with Mick Foley. It was a street fight at MSG. Outstanding. I think probably one of the more fun matches of his career. Um, We'll talk a lot more about Triple H here. Let's keep it moving for now. Around this time, uh, it's put out in the mainstream media that the USA Network is actually appealing uh, in court, of course, a decision that would allow the WWF to move from USA to TNN. Uh, that, that move is supposed to go down on September 25th, and they're trying to go to court in August for this uh, to kind of stop it. Now, of course, the rumor and innuendo, and I want you to clear this up because I don't know when we'll talk about it again, is that USA had the opportunity to match the offer from Viacom and they didn't match the money and they tried to keep you guys and lock you down based on a technicality. Now, Wade Keller reports that no one really expected USA to win this because they weren't matching the money and it was a technicality and that was kind of the common thinking. But Wade freestyles that they're doing this and trying to drag it through court to try to hurt advertising sales in the switch any which way they can. Is that what you guys believe? And if so, how shitty of this is USA? I think that we did feel that it was, they didn't in our, in our viewpoint, they did not do what the contract said. And we were free and clear to go and negotiate with anybody else. And we were free and clear to go with TNN at the time. So, I'll give you Vince's response to USA saying, hey, no, and and trying to sue and do whatever it is they tried to do. Grab your best hold. And he was extremely confident that there was absolutely no way that they were going to be able to block us from going to TNN. And at that point, frankly, it was principle. Right. Vince Vince was moving. He was pissed off, and he was moving. Well, and, and I think, well, first of all, before we move on, was grab your best hold of Vinceism? We're just now learning for the first time. Yeah, that's a Vinceism. I love that. Grab your best hold. Uh, it, it feels. Ow. It feels like you know after being such a good partner for USA for all these years. Now that you guys have kind of blown up, um, I guess maybe they would say you're a shitty partner for trying to leave them after they've had you on for so long and been a good partner to you when business was down. And now that it's blown up, you guys are playing the, hey, we got a better deal hand. Um, but it's also kind of shitty of USA for them to have you know, been with you this long and then try to throw down. It's, it's funny that it still worked out for them to come back. It's interesting that people always say, oh, they'll never be back in the WWE whenever a talent leaves. But, I mean, even with the fucking cable company, that whole best for business deal with Vince McMahon, that shit's a shoot, is it not? It is, and it's all and it's all business. That's all it is. It was an opportunity to go somewhere else and make more money, and it was something the USA felt that they didn't need to pay at that time. So, move on. As a part of, of these court documents, it comes out around this time. I'm going to read this directly from the torch. Last week, a previously undisclosed part of the WWF's TV deal with Viacom was revealed. Viacom has invested $30 million in WWFE. The investment comes in the form of approximately 2.3 million newly issued shares of Class A common stock at $13 per share, or about 3% of all outstanding shares and 14.3% stake overall in the company. 
So Vince negotiates a pretty good deal here with not only the television rights, but saying, hey, you've got to buy some stock. Uh, is this the first time you remember a deal like this going down on Vince's watch where he's using a partner like this and kind of forcing their hand for them to buy some stock like this? Well, it was just a financial deal, and it was another it was another creative way to get them to invest in the company. If they have stock in the company, they're, they're vested in the company. So they want to see it do well, and they're going to do everything on their part to help us because obviously they want their investment to pay dividends. So it, it was also the first opportunity that we had after going public really to do something like that. I dare say that Vince would have done a similar deal with USA Universal at the time as well. Uh, now, of course, you know, Mel is running CBS and Viacom and, and all that at the time. And this is a new partner for you guys. Do you remember any sort of, um, conversation about what Mel and Vince and their meetings may have been like. It feels like these are two really big personalities that a lot of people would like to be a fly on the wall for. <laughs> no, Viacom was extremely excited to have us as a partner. You know, we were doing the, the UPN deal. We were doing the TNN deal. So it was an opportunity to be on broadcast television. And that was a huge deal for us at the time. Yes, it was UPN. Yes, it was considered whatever the like the fifth or sixth network but it was still broadcast so it was a huge deal for us and, and they rolled out the red carpet and this at least is in the beginning and this is at a time you know when the wwe is getting a lot of scrutiny which we're going to get into in a little bit based on the content and so there's a lot of political heat but viacom is kind of the perfect partner because mel had built cbs radio around howard stern and so because he had been one of the biggest advocates for Howard Stern, he got that while this audience may not be, uh, I don't know, the most disconcerting with their taste about what was acceptable, they were people who were interested and who were loyal and who had money to spend. And, and he was fine with that for radio, so he's proving that he's fine with that here for television. Uh, Keller reported, talking about money here, that Benoit was earning about what he was earning in WCW, or maybe slightly better, but that the rest of the Radicals were likely working more dates for less money. Uh, and he specifically cites that Saturn is the most disgruntled, uh, and Wade reports that he had bonded the least with McMahon, writing this specifically. Saturn is considered to be strange and not worth a ton of effort to push, although the WWF has not given up on him as evidenced by pairing him with Terry Runnels. He has some back problems that might be slowing him down. He puts hot packs on his back before his matches just to keep his back loose. Uh, what's real and what's rumor and innuendo? How did Vince McMahon feel about Perry Saturn? And did you ever get any sort of wind of those guys being unhappy with the deal they made to leave WCW and come over to the WWF? Well, Perry Saturn was one of the guys of the four radicals was probably number two in the initial negotiations of who we were most interested in uh, Benoit being first and Saturn being second, Eddie third and Malenko fourth. So there was an attempt to do something with Perry because we felt that there was a big upside to Perry. However, as we got into it, there just was a disconnect with the audience and Perry Saturn. And I think that Vince kind of, eh, there, there wasn't to answer your question. Uh, there was not 
a great connection between Perry Saturn and Vince McMahon. And Perry is a difficult guy to kind of get to know. He's, he's a little different, but if you take the time to get to know him, he's somewhat interesting. But yeah, maybe maybe there wasn't so much the relationship there as there was with the other guys, in particular Eddie Guerrero and, and Benoit sticking out more than the other two. It, it's odd to me that Keller reports this here because this would be fresh off of Perry Saturn winning the European title at Fully Loaded. He won it from Eddie Guerrero, it's worth mentioning. Uh, but as he's writing this, and as this appears in his, in his sheet, he's, he's carrying gold. Would that have been something that there was maybe a whisper campaign backstage that, that Saturn's unhappy and somebody thinks, well, let's give him a belt. Maybe, you know, he'll be happy if we give him, if, if it feels like we're giving him a push. Or does that type of conversation even exist? I don't think that. I think that that's basically either Perry or just the boys themselves kind of talking about that. And maybe within, as far as in the office and that nature, no. Uh, I don't remember anything of that sort at that time. Well, let's get deep into the rumor and innuendo. Uh, I was challenged this week uh, that I could say that at least 20 times, and I think I can do 25. So I'm on my way. Hit me a couple times, Bruce. With rumor and innuendo? I don't do rumor and innuendo. But, you know, if you do do rumor and innuendo, then, by God, you go over to BrucePritchard.com and you get yourself a really nice rumor and innuendo T-shirt. I tell you what my new favorite shirt over there is, throw it in your Google machine. Uh, and go to BrucePritchard.com, but there you will see the Google machine throws you. Fashioned after the old machine masks from the WWF, we have a Google machine mask shirt, uh, and instead of the Google logo at the bottom, we have a multicolored something to wrestle logo at the bottom pattern, just like the the Google deal. You're going to like it. You're going to oh, like what a maneuver. What a maneuver. How about that? The old school WWF ring. We've got the blue ring skirts, the red, white, and blue ropes, a little bit of a toupee above it. What a maneuver. STF and W, hashtag BTFBB with a pair of shears, and of course, hey pal, all the new shirts. Grab them right now over at BrucePritchard.com. And when you pick up a shirt, there's rumor and innuendo that you actually give them a call. Isn't that right, Bruce? I definitely do. Sometimes it takes me a little bit longer than usual, but when you go to BrucePritchard.com and you get one of our shirts, I personally will call you just to say thank you because I used to be over and, well, you know. Uh, So here's some more rumor and innuendo. I think I'm well on track now. Uh, Wade reported, quote, Big Show arrived back in the WWF looking good physically, but there are questions about his cardio conditioning at this point. Big Show didn't endear himself to management when he dozed off during the production meeting either at Raw or the pay-per-view. He dozed off during a meeting around WrestleMania earlier this year, too. He tried to earn brownie points by going to the meeting, but actually wound up doing more damage than good by nodding off during it. He didn't impress management by leaving the pay-per-view on Sunday early rather than staying around and studying the two main events and discussing what worked and what didn't work with others backstage who were glued to the monitors. Uh, do you remember show having heat for any of this? We've talked about, you know, him having some heat for not being in the best shape, but falling asleep during a meeting. Does that ring a bell? This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it, I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. 
And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from painterlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, painterlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the painterlife.com has my back. And they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about painterlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with painterlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at painterlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. You know, Big Show had his moments. Let's just say that. And there were times that Big Show would try to endear himself to everyone, and sometimes he would do more harm than good in his effort. But Show did not come back in the best cardio shape. He was not really working as hard as he could have to improve. If you want to improve, you watch the best. And leaving early, doing things like that, don't endear yourself. It doesn't endear yourself to the office. It doesn't endear yourself to the other talent. Because if you want to learn, you want to sit there and you want to watch and see what everybody on top is doing right and what they're doing wrong. And learn every single night. I still watch every match and wait till the end. I've been doing this crap for 44 years, but I still love it too. So it's, that's the only way you're going to learn. Keller says that uh, one of his uh, co-workers, one of the boys, told Keller he refuses, talking about Big Show, he refuses to take responsibility for his actions. Did the office feel like that was the case at one point, that Big Show was 
maybe immature and just giving a lot of excuses? The Big Show was immature at that time, and he felt that he was a giant and felt that he that just simply enough. had to show up and be a giant. Right. And that was enough. And we needed more. We needed a working giant. We wanted a giant and an attraction that wanted to be on top and be willing to do whatever it took to get there. We're going to talk about him a little later. Uh, but I'm always curious when stories like this get out. Wade reported that uh, at one of the Raw production meetings, Lillian Garcia spoke up and didn't think that uh, Trish Stratus should be involved in a strap match on Raw uh, because she had uh, some bruises from her Sunday match. And afterwards, apparently, somebody uh, chewed her out and said something like, you should stick to Oh Say Can You See. And she began crying. So Shane sees this, takes her aside, and tells her that it's foolish to speak out like this and that it's not unusual or unexpected that somebody who performs in the WWF would have some sort of marks after a match. Um, Of course, Trish steps up and makes it clear to management she didn't complain and didn't put Lily up to speaking up on her behalf. Do you remember this? Any thoughts about... We've heard lots of stories about, or rumor and innuendo, about Lily and kind of... Um, not always being the apple of the eye from the management side. Do you remember this particular incident? I remember this particular incident vividly. And the, the actual, since it's been out there, the actual quote was that Lillian had to rub salve on Trisha's back. And it was Lillian speaking up trying to be a good person, which Lillian is. She's a very nice lady. And she was speaking up, trying to be a good person, not understanding the room. Right. And as you know, you got to know your audience and you got to know your room. And to speak up like that in a room full of agents that had wrestled before and guys that had done the things that they had done before prior to this, for a ring announcer who had never taken a bump, who had never been in the ring and done any of these things to speak up and say oh well you know i had to rub salve on trish's back and and she shouldn't be in there not her place and it was just speaking out of school so i'm sure that more than one person probably said something to lillian about not your place you shouldn't bring that kind of thing up in a meeting like that you should pretty much stick to what your job is, which is ring announcing and singing uh, Oh Say Can You See, and focus on that and let the talent in the ring worry about what they're doing in the ring. If Trish has a problem with it, then Trish should speak up, not you. Hypothetically speaking, if Vince McMahon would have been the one to hear that, react, and give the advice, what might that sound like? Go sing the Star Spangled Banner. That was disappointing. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was disappointing until you slipped in the little pitch. Uh, here's some more rumor and innuendo. I'm on my way to 25. While Rock dresses among the other wrestlers, Triple H often has his own dressing room and spends a lot of time in Vince McMahon's office at the arenas. It gives Rock the image of more of a wrestler's wrestler, and Triple H has earned a bit of a rep as a brown noser. Triple H, though, spends a number of his hours per week in production meetings working on storylines other than his own, 
whereas that is not the rock's area of interest. Is this a, a fair assessment or is this the viewpoint of a local minority who calls Wade Keller? I think that that is the assessment of a vocal minority. I don't ever remember Triple H having his own locker room back at that time. I don't even remember Triple H having his own locker room when he and Stephanie were married. He still dressed with the boys until he got his bus and all of that. When everybody started getting buses, I don't remember Triple H ever going off and having a dressing room unto himself. Neither did Rock. Let me ask you this. When did the talk... And I need you to give me a straight answer and not your bullshit, polished, shined, homogenized rhetoric. I'm not giving you a bullshit answer. Okay. When, when did someone, not you, when did someone start to say, boy, Triple H is a fucking brown noser. Look at him in there in Vince's office all the goddamn time. Somebody saying that, and I'm not asking for who. When did it start? I don't know because I wasn't a part of the boys and listening to that gossip and that rumor and innuendo. It never got to me because I was in the office. That wouldn't get to me. So to to listen to that and to hear that, I never really heard any of that kind of shit until much, much later when he was more involved. So you started hearing that when? Oh, three? I'm just freestyling. Pro- I guess. I'm, I'm trying to figure out when probably whenever he uh, came out that he was dating Stephanie. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll talk Around about that, time that at some frame. point. Uh, it comes out here that a plot line for Walker, Texas Ranger was being filmed where there was an investigation into a wrestler's death when a stunt went wrong. And of course, the rumor is uh, this is based on Owen Hart's death. Do you remember hearing about this and thinking this was just the USA network trying to stick it to you guys to be a bunch of dicks. We heard about it. We definitely heard about it. I don't think that it's, it's not a USA production. It, it, the show was on the USA network, but I don't think it was a USA production. We did. I remember definitely heard about it and probably reached out to say, Hey guys, come on. But to no avail, you, you would have been the person tasked with that. No, I wouldn't have done that, no. I was going to say, I can't imagine you trying to sweet-talk anybody. Um, the WWF- Chuck Norris is a karate man, so you know he's not a three-time Black Belt Hall of Famer, but, well, you know. You know, I heard a rumor that uh, Chuck Norris wears brother love underwear. Who doesn't? There you go. The WWF hired Donna Goldsmith as Senior Vice President of Consumer Products around this time. She was going to oversee the publications, merchandise, licensing, home video, and retail marketing. So this is a big component of the revenue for the company at the time. Uh, she's reporting to Stuart Snyder, who was the president and COO, uh, chief operations officer for the company. Uh, and Goldsmith had previously worked with the NBA and Swatch Watch and Revlon. So it feels a little weird that she's now in wrestling. Any memories of working with Donna Goldsmith here? Yeah, never heard of her. Don't know who she is. Is this no, real? I will say that. No, Donna Goldsmith was in charge of merchandising and licensing, as you said, and they wanted to do a brother love action figure. So they had called me, they being Jack Pacific at the time. I called Donna and I said, hey, I'd like to do this and she says well why are you calling me and who is this brother love person that you're talking about that's amazing 
So, uh, she doesn't know me. I don't know her. Well, what's awesome is she was with the company from 2000 until 2011. Um, and then she worked for the Super Bowl host committee, uh, Think Geek, and now she's with Tough Mudder. Uh, it's, it's always fascinating to me when somebody from outside of wrestling comes into wrestling because they don't usually have the understanding of, you know, like you being brother love. So I knew we'd get a good story in there. Uh, It was simply the fact that she was in charge of licensing and the whole thing was about the classics. And and instead, and instead of asking a logical question was like, well, who are you and why are you calling me? And I was overseeing creative at the time, but anyway, fuck her. Wow. Not, not a big Donna Goldsmith fan. No. Are you going to be competing in any tough mutters? No, I'm not in the mud and tough thing. Hypothetically speaking, do you think Pat Patterson's ever been in a tough mutter? Atta beta, fuck the mud and tough and fucking douchebag. So the WWF did something pretty weird here. They get into politics. Uh, They actually sent Michael Cole down to the floor of the GOP convention, and The Rock was there speaking, and Linda McMahon even spoke at the luncheon for a few minutes, and she talked a lot about the American dream. Not Dusty Rhodes, but the one... Yeah, ready to get right into it, baby. Talking about the American dream, if you will, baby. Because everybody wants to live the American dream, baby. Now, they even ran promos uh, here saying that over 14 million Americans watch WWF programming each week. Would they vote for you? So this is kind of uh, the WWF puffing their chest out that they're not here to be pushed around. Uh, and Wade Keller actually re- kind of took them to task about this 14 million number that they reported. And Vince McMahon calls to correct it and says it's probably closer to seven or eight million because many of their fans watch both shows. But still, it's a lot of folks. And they're doing all of this, and, and I'm very fascinated by their, their interest in politics here. But uh, this is largely in response to the heat you guys were getting from the half a million member PTC or Parent Teacher Council. Is that right, Bruce? Yes, it is. So we're going to talk about this a great deal because this is obviously loosely what the uh, right to censor is based around. And we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, uh, there's a report here that Dick Cheney personally called and asked for The Rock to appear. I find that hard to believe. Is that shit for real? That's what we heard. Yeah, we heard that. uh, And I don't know if Dick Cheney himself personally called, but I know Dick Cheney's people called. Everybody was buzzing about that. Yeah. Is it weird to me that I imagine that your Dick Cheney impression would sound remarkably similar to your Jim Ross? Her, that's fresh. Uh, yeah, we're looking for uh, the rock. Hey, Dick Cheney calling and uh, <laughs> wondering if uh, the rock would be available, you know, to come on out and maybe give a little speech or two at the convention. That's how funny is it that all this time later, Linda is actually in the administration and the rock is considering running for office. This is 17 years ago. And this is finally really a thing. Like is Michael Cole going to be like secretary of defense? What's next for this? I I don't, I, I don't know what's going on where the, the irony of the people who are involved here, and now they Michael might actually Cole really reported be from the front lines in, in uh, uh, desert storm, man. He's the new Sean Spicer now, right? Yeah, when the rock, could do it. when the rock is there, that that's going to be the deal. Uh, Jericho got <laughs> married. Brian Gewertz will be the rock speechwriter. Can you imagine how great that would be? 
I love that. I can't wait to see Poontang Pie in a public address. That'll be great. And I, I could actually see uh, Brian pitching that to Rock. No, no, no. They'll get it. They'll get it. And Rock saying, I think it's my pretty little pony. And no, I think it's a pink, pink pony. Well, no, I think it's pretty little pony. And anyway, that's a whole discussion that Rock and Brian had one day. Uh, Jericho got married over the summer here, and a lot of the boys attended. Uh, do you have any memories about Jericho's wedding or any fun wrestling weddings you can share a story about? Because it feels like wrestlers probably have some pretty interesting weddings. I I, I wasn't invited to uh, Mr. Jericho's wedding. Why so. would you be? Yeah. Yeah. Did, so I'm sorry. Have you ever been to one? Has anybody ever invited you to a wedding? Or do you have to get married before you get to go to one? I was in the wedding party of Undertaker's second uh, marriage and uh, John Bradshaw Hayfield's second marriage. So, so there. I was actually in the wedding parties. And, and those are unmentionables that we can never, ever discuss out in the public eye. Um we can always talk about Shane McMahon's wedding. That counts as a ra- no, not Shane McWell. Was it Shane's? Shane McMahon's wedding was crazy. That that one was nuts. And then Stephanie and Hunter's wedding is where Michael Hayes got drunk and wanted to sing the bride and groom a special song, only to have the microphone yanked out of his hand by Linda McMahon and then be threatened by Kurt Angle to shut up or he was going to kill him. Because he talks about uh, almost peeing on Linda, right? Well, that was on a plane at one point, yeah. but. You know, uh, the rock appeared on the tonight show on August 23rd. Uh, and this was a huge deal at the time, right? Bruce, I don't think a lot of younger fans can really appreciate what a big deal the tonight show used to be. It's still obviously a big deal now, but it was an even bigger deal back then. Uh, I'm curious, does the WWF line stuff like this up for the rock or is Leno just calling and asking for the rock like Dick Cheney? No, actually, Leno called Dick Cheney to ask for The Rock if he knew The Rock. No, of course we're lining it up. At this at this time, yeah, we have someone that uh, worked with the folks in Hollywood booking agents to get our talent on different shows. Who was the person in charge of that? Oh, shit. If you wouldn't ask me your name, I could tell you. Lisa Wolf? No. Just God. kidding. Oh, gee. I, I, if you were here, I would slap you. Uh, Keller and I, I, nice girl. She was out in California, a little, little flaky, but, uh, she, she did good, man. She, she could get the celebrity hookups. Let's talk about Taz. Uh, and I guess we should preface this by saying, I know we're going to get a lot of heat just because we said his name. So go ahead and start tweeting his ass and tagging Bruce and I in it to stir shit up. Cause that's what you guys do. Uh, anytime we say his name, I get 4,000 tweets backstage at raw this week. This is straight from the torch. Bradshaw was sitting around watching the monitor with Perry Saturn as Taz wrestled. When Taz threw a suplex, Bradshaw joked with Saturn that Taz was stealing his move. Taz was said to have had a low-key demeanor this week at TVs, but Tuesday night at the SmackDown tapings, he was bumping like crazy in his match with Val Venus against Rikishi and Eddie Guerrero. In the past, Taz has said he didn't like taking bumps or even running in the ring because it didn't fit his style of wrestling. Now it appears he's going to have to adjust his style since he just realized that approach wasn't winning him any fans behind the scenes in the WWF. I find this curious, Bruce, that we get this type of information from the torch. So I'm curious, does Taz really have heat at this point? Or is this just killer burying motherfuckers? I think it's just killer burying motherfuckers. And I think it's when they look at Taz changing his style because he had to change his style, being a 
killer baby face that just doesn't sell anything and goes out and suplexes everybody, dropping them on their head, wasn't a style that was going to work for him. I love you said in that. this environment. I love you said that. Let me stop you right there because this is you almost did this word for word for me. This is in the torch. Taz had a very, when he first starts with the WWF, Taz had a very narrow list of things he would do and a long list of things he wouldn't do within a match. He would tell people his character doesn't sell, doesn't run, and generally just throws suplexes. The WWF doesn't want Taz to be a killer babyface who never sells. They are trying to market him as a heel, but if he never sells as a heel, fans will cheer him. The key to getting booed is talking a big game, but when the heat is on, backing down like a coward and lying about it later. Taz has been very resistant to that formula. He's very image conscious and apparently believes it would do irreparable harm to his badass human suplex machine if he was to ever beg off or show ass. Because of his height, he may be insecure about showing vulnerabilities in terms of toughness. Members of WWF's management have been surprised by Taz's limitations and attitude thus far and have basically told him he's going to have to adjust to the WWF heel style. The belief is working with a master ring psychologist like Jerry Lawler should help him. Lawler is going to be a huge baby face in their match at SummerSlam, so Taz will have the perfect opportunity to play the type of role that WWF wants him to be at that event. Is this fair and accurate? Because it feels like Keller just said almost word for word what you said. Well, no, it's not fair and accurate from the standpoint of you're simply taking what was. First time I've used the word simply. No, it's not. That's the 15th show. time you, you have Alzheimer's. It's not. I, ha- I didn't use it. I didn't use it today. Yes, you have. I'm very conscious of that. No, you're not. Did not. So Fourth Taz time. had a style, and Taz's style worked very well for him in ECW. When Taz came in, first match he worked with Kurt Angle, he continued on. He couldn't be the human suplex machine. And Taz, as a heel, would have to be able to sell, and he couldn't just go and drop everybody on his head. It's a departure for Taz from his character that he was in ECW. So whoever was talking to Wade Keller and giving him this uh, summation of Taz's feeling and what is happening in the WWF at the time is probably just looking at this and probably playing into Taz's paranoia of wanting to get over. Taz is a very image-conscious performer in general. He worked really hard to get where he was in ECW and he didn't want to lose that. Didn't felt that he, if he deviated from that, that he would lose something. That part is true. That's Pete Sinertia. But he was extremely open to change. He, his attitude did not have a bad attitude, at least to me, because I approached him on several of these issues and he was willing to change. He was willing to work on it. But I think that, people look at it and they see what he was they see that he's being asked to change now so of course the boys are going to rib him and the boys are going to try and get into his head because they think that's what you do you get to mess with somebody backstage have fun with him well the ribbing continued uh keller reported um that the ribbing on taz had taken on a life of its own at the Madison Square Garden Raw, Chaz Warrington and D'Lo Brown led the charge Chaz made it known he was adding an extra z and he was the first to add an extra Z to his name. Meanwhile, 
Adilo wore an orange tank top and walked around backstage with an orange towel over his head, putting people in the TAS mission. Bradshaw was walking around with a bandage on his shin. When people would ask him what happened, he would say he leapfrogged Taz and he hit his shin on Taz's head. (laughs) The ribbing is said to be a combination of having fun at Taz's expense and trying to send a message to Taz to not take himself so seriously. At this point, Taz is laughing along with the jokes, so it's clear... But it's clear he is bothered by how widespread the mocking and ribbing has become. Other wrestlers don't dislike Taz personally, but they do believe he needs to loosen up and relax and adjust to the WWF style. He tells another story where Taz made some sort of passing comment about a member of the Mean Street Posse growing a goatee that was similar to his and that he was going to complain to management about it. Apparently this was said in jest, but rather than making fun of himself, It sounds as if there's truth in Taz's jest uh, because he's developed a reputation for being so protectively paranoid about his look that all of these ribs are now being planned to just mess with his head and get a reaction out of him. Do you remember any of these ribs in particular or any other fun Taz ribs that you could share with us where a guy was taking himself too seriously and um, just didn't get the joke right away? I think that these are funny ribs. I think they're good-natured, funny ribs. I, as you're reading them, I'm, I'm laughing my ass off. And the talent definitely is going to mess with you if you are taking yourself too seriously. I don't remember a time that Taz ever came and said, oh, guys are picking on me or they're ribbing me no. too hard. I don't think that Taz took him that serious that it bothered him to that level. And we simply had him change his style. Because he was going to be a heel. And people that had worked with him prior in ECW maybe had a reputation. I don't know what Taz was like in ECW. I know what he was like when he came to the WWF. And he was open to change. And he didn't have a bad attitude about it. Right. At least not to me. Well, uh, Steve Austin didn't have a bad attitude when he got some great news just a few weeks before SummerSlam. Uh, he saw Dr. Lloyd Youngblood, a neurosurgeon at the Methodist hospital in San Antonio. And this is months after he had surgery to do spinal fusion. Uh, he had been at home this entire time and grown bored, just being stuck there, but he's hopeful that he'd be able to get to return. And he starts to do cardio in a heavy way. Uh, just being hopeful. But he hadn't been evaluated in a couple of months because during the most recent x-ray, there was still significant separation in the vertebrae, so he would not be eligible to take bumps. I mean, that could cause serious damage. So he's still working out. He sees Dr. Youngblood, and he gets the great news that he should be able to return sometime in October. He finds himself five days later flying to New York to meet with Vince because it's time to get the band back together. Your top star has been sidelined. And five days later, they're getting together in New York. Bruce, do you remember the news? Hey, we're finally getting him back, and we're going to try to put him on that September 25th TNN show, and he should be able to go as far as in-ring by October or Survivor Series at the latest. Uh, Do you remember this news in particular and this visit? Hallelujah. We were excited. (laughs) We were psyched. We were stoked. Going on our new network, business was good, and we were getting guys over. You had Rock, and business was great, but the loss of Steve, we felt it. 
because Steve's presence was just, <laughs> it made a difference. It made a difference in the ratings. It made a difference in the house shows. It made a difference in merchandising. Everything, his presence was felt. So to know that he was going to be able to come back, there was thought of how soon could we get it done, but at the same time, we didn't want to rush it. We wanted to make sure that he was 100% ready to go. But that news was above and beyond. Uh, regarding the early plan for SummerSlam, Wade wrote that Big Show was scheduled to team with Shane McMahon against Kane and the Undertaker. So that was our original SummerSlam plan. But Big Show was back in the doghouse over not being in shape. Wade wrote, his match at Saturday Night's House Show in Detroit was the final straw. He teamed with Benoit against Kane and Undertaker and was winded instantly. His performance was classified as embarrassing, according to WWF sources. He was also complaining of back spasms. The WWF, completely unimpressed with his commitment towards taking his job seriously, demoted him to Ohio Valley Wrestling, where he will work small indie shows for Jim Cornette or work out of the Louisville, Kentucky Training Center under Cornette's guidance. WWF management believes that Big Show has main event potential, but not until his mental age comes close to his actual age. WWF management is down on show for being quote, a heavy smoker who eats junk food all the time and doesn't do any cardio workouts. The belief within the company these days is where somebody like show could get by on awing audience with his size alone are gone. We've talked about this a minute ago, but do you remember hearing about this house show match and that being the final straw and based on tenure in the company, was it the undertaker who does this? There wasn't any final straw. It was a combination of things, and it was the effort over a few weeks with Big Show where we saw that he came back not in shape. His cardio was horrible. It's You would get the lip service. I'm, gonna, I'm eating healthy. I'm, I'm eating chicken breasts and dry pasta and salad and vegetables. I quit smoking, and then he would be out by the truck having a smoke with uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. I tell you the the Brock Lesnar Big Show Krispy Kreme donut one day story one day which is absolutely hilarious. Oh no no you can't tease us let's do it. Well, at one of these times that Show was on a diet and taking care of himself and eating healthy, Harvey Whippleman walks in with uh, I think three or four dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, and Brock stops him and says, "Oh hey Krispy Kremes, who's are those for?" He goes, "Oh man, these are Big Shows." And he's like, all of them? He's like, yeah, but don't tell anybody. So Brock goes in <laughs> to every donut and takes a huge bite out of every donut and puts them back in the box. He says, go, take them to him now and tell them who did it. So that was the same kind of thing going on here with Big Show. He you know, would go again, send out for four Big Macs, uh, 40 pieces, chicken McNuggets, uh, milkshake, and he just wasn't taking good care of himself. The fear was also, you look at history of giants. Andre died right. in his mid-40s, and Vince was very concerned that if Show didn't take care of himself, that he would die at a young age. Didn't want that to happen. Really wanted this guy to have a career and for him to be healthy because he's already got one strike against him. 
wasn't doing it and felt that the only way that uh, Big Show was going to take it seriously is if we sent him back down to OVW, go down there, get your ass in shape. And by getting your ass in shape, it's just not losing weight, but get in ring shape. Be able to go. Get your cardio better. And when you're right, we'll bring you back. But Vince had just had it. And it wasn't one match, one night, or anything like that. It was a culmination of show not being able to perform to the level that we were looking for him to perform at. Well, Kelly reports that the undertaker chewed him out backstage, uh, and said something like he had a long way to go before he's any good. Uh, and taker is apparently not happy with him pulling up lame because of back spasms, uh, apparently having a low tolerance for those excuses since he himself has worked through so many injuries uh, and the the word in the observer is, I'm sorry, in the torch, force of habit, quote, the rap on Big Show in general is that he is immature and he has no heart when it comes to earning his paycheck. That's pretty critical, pretty hardcore. Do you remember anybody going that far with the conversation about Big Show that they would say that he was immature and had no heart about earning his paycheck? Yeah, Vince McMahon probably had that conversation with him. Undertaker probably had that conversation with him. I wouldn't be surprised if Rock and, and Triple H had the same conversation with him, but I, I guarantee you Vince McMahon did. I found this to be typical of the mainstream opinion of wrestling. Time Magazine correspondent Margaret Carlson on the August 13th edition of CNN's Capital Gang was discussing um, Joseph Lieberman <laughs> and said... And said regarding Rock, quote, all I have to say is the Rock keynoting Wednesday night, the white skinhead, hateful wrestling guys, that's the symbol. She went on to say that Rock represents the anti-black WWF. This is hilarious because the Rock's dad is black. Well, I have this to say about that. Kind of like Dave Silva, fake news. Uh, it comes out here in the torch that there's a lot of rumor and innuendo from the WCW side that guys are thinking about making a phone call to the WWF and names are floating out all the time. Uh, we start hearing Dallas page, his buddy Canyon, Marcus Bagwell and Lex Luger as being those who are most likely to have inquired about working with the WWF. And Wade would report, quote, one big-name WCW wrestler who used to work in the WWF even called Vince McMahon directly, but McMahon redirected his call to Jim Ross, whom McMahon has given the duty of deciding on what roster additions and negotiating deals should happen. Uh, do you remember any of this, and who got redirected from your memory? We always got calls from guys in WCW, and they all got redirected to Jim Ross. Vince was not going to have any conversation with them, and that was the protocol. You call, go talk to JR. JR is the one that's going to negotiate your deal. If there is anything, he's going to find out what your contractual situation is, if we can even talk to you. So if anybody called um, at any level, they were going to be redirected to JR. So that, at that during this time, there were a lot of guys calling. Well, and there's a lot of guys calling for a variety of reasons, one of which is this AOL Time Warner merger. It's the talk of the company, and a lot of the guys are nervous. Uh, how was that news received by you guys in the WWF office? Did you realize, hey, they're going to come calling now? 
this is great news for us. What what was the the rap? Uh, what did you guys think about the AOL Time Warner merger? No one had any idea what the hell was going to happen to the wrestling company because Ted Turner, it was a passion project for Ted Turner. The wrestling company was AOL Time Warner. They had no loyalty to wrestling. There, there was no ties to wrestling to them. It was simply an entry on a balance sheet. So I know I said it again. Sorry. Um, it was the unknown. It was the great unknown. The talent and everyone there in the office had no idea what the hell was going to happen. So they're checking out their options. What can I do and where can I go? We didn't really know how AOL was going to treat WCW at the time until they really got in. And, and when we found out that Ted was out, more on the outs, then we thought their days are probably limited. Uh, I wanted to ask about this because you guys ran a promo for this in the middle of the show, uh, but it was radio WWF and it was reported that this was just a one-time broadcast to hype SummerSlam and it wasn't going to be a weekly show. It was going to air on Saturday night on the Westwood one radio network. And this is in a variety of, of markets across the country. Michael Cole was the host and he had a list of guests, Mick Foley, Eddie Guerrero, China, Too Cool, uh, Trish Stratus, and lots of call-in folks, The Rock and others. And there was talk that if this went well, they might do this for future pay-per-views. Do you remember how this comes about? It feels like something that Vince McMahon wouldn't have necessarily thought he needed to do in 2000. So who put a bug in his ear about radio? Jim Ross loved radio. Jim had a successful radio show in Atlanta, and when Jim came on board in the early 90s, we had actually done some things with WWF radio back during that time with Jim Ross doing it. Vince did it for a while. But at this particular time, Michael Cole came from radio. Michael Cole came from CBS radio. But I believe it was Brad Saul who was with Westwood One and who would later uh, develop Web Talk Radio, where I did my first podcast. And John Layfield had a podcast on there as well that came to us with the opportunity to try and create a WWF radio network. So this was just another toe in the water of the radio world to see if there was really anything to it. Let's talk about the McMahons. Um Keller would write that one wrestler told him Shane has always played his real self on TV and the real Stephanie is a cross between her original wholesome character and the current on-air persona. He goes on to say that both of the kids, despite being the son and daughter of the owners, uh, don't generate any heat for themselves. They don't act privileged or bulletproof. uh, And he thinks that their family dynamic is very strong and healthy. Uh, with themselves and, and with their parents. They're kind of the first family of wrestling. So there is this fascination of what that dynamic looks like. And of course, these days there's lots of rumor and innuendo about the siblings. Was this a fair assessment at the time? And when do you remember some of this maybe changing if it ever did? Fair and accurate. I think that I don't know that it really ever did change when Shane left. I wasn't there, so I don't know what that dynamic was at that time when Shane left the company. 
but for the most part, that dynamic never really changed. Well, here's what I mean, I guess. You know, let's, let's zero in on this one. The real Stephanie is a cross between her original wholesome character and her current on-air persona. The rumor and innuendo is that Stephanie, if you work for her, is a fucking bitch. Now, I've met Stephanie in real life, and she's awesome, but I don't work for her. But I've heard multiple people say that she is a nightmare to work for. And that's what's out there. That's the narrative from people who've worked with her and written books or done podcasts or whatever. Um, when do you think she kind of came into her own and did the business change her or did, was that what she was supposed to do in that position? Because as we've said before, there are what we've called on this show before people who have jobs in the quote unquote heat position. Did she have a job in the heat position? And that's what changed. Stephanie did have a job in the heat position, and not only that, she got put into a job in the heat position at an extremely young age. Right. And got put into a position of responsibility and heat that maybe she wasn't ready for, and she thought she had to act a certain way. I believe that deep down, and you talk about the family dynamic, they all, they're a great family. They really and truly are. Sure. I mean, we don't want to bury that at all. Um, I guess in terms of the Stephanie deal, do you think that happened when she was put into, you know, the head of creative or can you pinpoint when maybe people started to feel differently about her? I think when she got put into the, uh, head of creative, I mean, once, once her response, once her responsibilities broadened and she had to manage more and more people and just gain more and more responsibility. I think that she felt the weight of the world on her shoulders. Right. It's it's not easy, man. I did it when I was 24 years old, and it's overwhelming. I was way immature and not ready for it. So and, I can relate to that. It sucks. It's It's a tough deal. And as much as you may have thought you were at one point, you're not a McMahon. So the pressure for her has got to be even more enormous because people expect her to act and look and think and behave a certain way. And she's not just a, not just a McMahon daddy's little girl. Right. So throw the woman in the man's business. Right. And your last name's McMahon. So it's a tough road and it is what it is. Well, I think you've backpedaled enough to defend yourself now. Um, let's talk about just Joe. We've never talked about him before <laughs> on the show. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. He's working house show loops here prior to SummerSlam. And when I said his name, you started laughing. What do you remember? What can you tell us about just Joe? He will. Name was mentioned on our podcast. Joey legend was a part of the Canadian clique of Edge and Christian and Val Venus in in that uh, Toronto Canadian group. And you are correct, Conrad. I don't think we will ever talk about just Joe again on this podcast. A decent worker, nothing special. And Vince, when he met him, everybody was trying to come up with a name for him. And it was the kiss of death when Vince just said, ah, just Joe. So you just want to call him Joe? No, I want to call him just Joe. <laughs> so we're, 
His name's Joe. No, just Joe. So we're going to call him just Joe. Yes. He'll introduce himself. How you doing? Just Joe. So your name's Joe? No, just Joe. Okay, kids, I have now filled you in on just Joe. He did some vignettes. I think he worked a couple of matches and had a better case. Hypothetically speaking, what would Jim Cornette think of that name? What the fuck is his name? His name is Joe. Oh, God damn it, Corny. It's just Joe. That's what I fucking said. His name is Joe. Just Joe. Joe. Just Joe. Is he a goddamn wrestler wearing wrestling boots? What the fuck? He's a goddamn WWF superstar. So he's just Joe. Exactly. Something like that. Oh, that's so fun. Motherfucker. Thank you. I mean, that's the way all those segments have to end. Uh, so here's the deal. SummerSlam 2000. We're finally here. The headline from the torch the week after SummerSlam WWF delivers knockout show. Uh, Wade would write the WWF may not be planning pay-per-view main events six months ahead like they used to, but SummerSlam is evidence that long-term planning might be slightly overrated. The WWF product is clicking on enough cylinders right now to be drawing better TV ratings, pay-per-view buy rates, merchandise sales, and house show gates than at any time in its history. It's no accident that the WWF is putting on a better streak of shows than at any time in its history. Also, the in-ring product, while not consistently spectacular, is almost always solid with enough spectacular moments to make each show must-see for most pay-per-view customers. And Wade even said that many were touting SummerSlam as the show of the year. Uh, What did you think of that characterization of business at the time and of SummerSlam? I feel that the characterization of business at the time is accurate. I didn't think that this show held up for me. No, I would agree. On an overall basis. I didn't think that it was... I didn't end it going, wow, what a great show. I just remembered moments. Yeah, and I, I think, um, I mean, I'll be honest. I had to look this up when I saw that this is what won the poll. I, I wasn't really sure, you know, what all happened here. Um, I guess before we get to the actual show, we should mention that you guys, man, I pulled out all the stops promoting this that week. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons you guys were so successful. You had so much crossover opportunity here. Tons of appearances uh, on mainstream television. Like Mick Foley was on Fox News. Uh, He was on there talking about backyard wrestling. But, of course, it was an opportunity to promote the WWF. Uh, Stephanie McMahon was on the Chet Kopik show. And that's a syndicated radio show. Uh, They talked about, you know, everything from Phil Mushnick to growing up with Vince McMahon. And, of course, the pay-per-view and there was a and, you t- know, go ahead. You know, Chet Kopic was ring announcer at uh, WrestleMania two in Chicago. Oh, so there you go. From Chicago, great guy, and I used him from time to time to do play by play as well. I really wanted to hire him uh, instead of Tony Schiavone to come in and do play by play, but his ties to Chicago and the sports world wouldn't allow it. Well, I'm sure Tony Schiavone is glad that you weren't able to make that deal. Okay. Um, 
there was even a countdown to SummerSlam series of features on MTV. They had Al Snow, Mick Foley, lots of folks uh, there. Uh, Jericho, Angle, Edge, Taz, Christian. Uh, so they're really doing everything they can, including having The Rock do some stuff for Saturday Night Live uh, and Star Trek Voyager. So there's lots of opportunity to do crossover stuff here. Um, and everybody wants to be a part of it. I mean, this is the hot deal. You've got, got Raven showing up backstage, just hanging out before his ECW contract's up to show that he's in good shape and let people know when his contract's up. And William Regal's doing the same thing. Mona, uh, who would become Molly Holly, uh, she's showing up and just saying, hey, I'm here, I'm available. This is the hottest time in the history of the company. Everybody wants in. Is that fair to say, Bruce? Yeah, Randy Savage even called and recommended Mona. How cool. Molly Holly. Hypothetically, what did that sound like? Hey, brother, I know, uh, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, you know, Mona, you might have seen her before. She's uh, a good girl, and I think she deserves a break. So if there's anything you could do for her, give her a little look-see, yeah. And maybe you guys could use her, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, who, who does Macho Man make that call to? He might have made that phone call to me. Oh, I mean. It was a short conversation, and it was literally about that long. How you doing? And bam. He called for Mona. I just didn't know if he had Stephanie's number. The WWFE uh, released figures for the first quarter uh, ending July 28th, 2000, and they showed their net revenues were up 34% to 101.9 million. Process that. Net revenues were up 34% from 99 for that first quarter. Uh, 101.9 million. Oh, gosh. Let's get into it. Yeah, I watched this pay-per-view today for the first time in 17 years. I know I watched it when it first happened, but today's the first time I've seen it. And what stood out to me mostly when I first fired this up is I was not ready for this opening package. It's the little film by Freddie Fellaini. I assume this is a rib. Uh, we see Freddie Blassie there and, and lots of other uh, character actors. And I'm not exactly sure what the hell's going on, but it's pretty artsy-fartsy. This feels like something Vince McMahon would have loved. Am I right? opera-ish almost it was a beautiful David Sahadi production that brought the ethos of the drama and the athleticism that was the WWF so Vince loved it yes what is a Freddie Fellini is that a nod to somebody I don't know what the hell a Freddie Fellini is what's Blassie's shoot last name is that what it is? I don't know. I'm asking. I thought it was Blassie. I feel like we're doing who's on first again with just Joe right now. This is like our version of just Joe. No, it's his real name is Freddie Blassie. Yeah. So what the fuck they, is they, a, they. what the fuck is a Fellini? You're supposed I don't to know. Maybe it's just been something Sahadi came up with. All right, listen. Let's just pretend, just do what you always do. When I ask you a question and you don't know the answer, don't say the booking committee or I don't know. That's the other show. Just make something up like you normally do. So let's try again. 
So, Bruce, they do this opening package here, uh, and I don't really understand. It's kind of artsy-fartsy. I mean, it's got Freddie Blassie and some other character actors in here. Uh, but it says a film by Freddie Fellini. Is that a rib? What is a Freddie? Who's Freddie Fellini? Freddie Fellini, sir, is Vince McMahon's gardener of the Fellini Brothers Landscape Company out of Greenwich, Connecticut. And Mr. Fellini one time made the suggestion to Mr. McMahon about why don't you do a show open like an old opera movie, like an old-timey silent talkie. No, actually, a non-talkie, sir. I love Freddie it. Fellini of the Fellini Brothers Landscaping. Well, shout out to him because uh, the Hardys have stolen his gimmick with that whole gardener thing. Hey, so um, let's talk about this pay-per-view set. This is something that a lot of fans talk about online. They miss these old pay-per-view sets and how they were all different for each pay-per-view. Now we get the same HD set, which is packed with technology and, and probably way, way, way more expensive. Uh, but it, it is kind of uniform. We get the same thing every time. Raw, SmackDown, pay-per-view. But people liked these, and this is an interesting set. We've never really talked about it before, and I know you don't like talking about money when it goes to a performer. Give me an idea of what you think a pay-per-view set was costing back in 2000. Just freestyle. The piece of shit one that we had here at SummerSlam? Well, you know, the, like even the pyro here. This is kind of next-level pyro. It feels like this would have been a significant line item. Do you remember what you guys would budget for pyro or pay-per-view sets or how all that was derived? I didn't do budgets, but it probably about $100,000 all in for each set. And, and, and pi- you got you got to remember that a lot of those elements of each set were Recycled. utilized yeah. for, different, for different sets throughout the year. Sure. So they weren't just a one. It, it's not like a one-time line item. It was something that was built that could be utilized. I actually, it's funny you bring that up because I thought that the set sucked for this show. No, it did suck, but it made it, it was so different. It made me think about all the sets through the years that didn't suck and that we hadn't really talked about that much on the show. So I didn't think this one was necessarily spectacular, but you know, I know they're very conscious of what things cost now and. I couldn't help but notice when that pyro is going off. Well, that was not cheap. What do you think a pyro budget for a pay-per-view was back in the day? 30 grand, 50 grand. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me that, you know, I know people who worked WrestleMania and featured matches. They didn't make 50 grand. And the fucking fireworks did. Oh, fireworks. Well, I'm just saying how many people in the crowd bought tickets to see fireworks you'd be surprised well i never bought a ticket to an ecw show to see fireworks i'm just throwing that out because they didn't have them well i didn't need them they couldn't afford them they had fireworks in the back (laughs) well they were sparking up that's for sure the, the thing that stands out to me too well when i watch this i mean it just really jumps off the screen at you is the remarkable number of signs. I mean, even compared to today, it was just signomania in the crowd here. When do you remember that becoming silly? Was that like 97, 98? Austin, three, Austin 316. So you think towards the end of 96 is when it started to get out of hand? Yes. Do you remember anybody in the office particularly disliking it? Because it feels like somebody 
maybe it's production or somebody on the television side would say, it looks like shit. I want to see the people, not all these fucking dollar office depot signs. Yeah, Vince, there was a time that I think Vince, Kevin Dunn, and a lot of people didn't like it because it was distracting during the show when people would hold up their signs and either block people's views or all you're looking at is signs instead of looking at the match. And it just became distracting or it would block cameras. That's the only reason that they hated them because of that. The I remember a, a time in the business when we used to make signs. And I'm talking about, I go way back to when I was like 12 years old and uh, Paul Bosch had a bunch of signs made up with make, make Dylan wrestle for J.J. Dillon when he was managing the Mongolian Stomper. And a couple of us kids would walk around the ring with the, with the signs. And the business has come a long way since then. No, it absolutely has. Uh, let's talk about, you know, what we're really here to talk about, and that's the matches right to censor is out first. We've got Steven Richards tagging with the good father and Bull Buchanan to take on Rikishi and too cool. Um, first let's just go performer by performer. This is the most featured role that Stevie Richards ever had in wrestling, just based on the height of wrestling at the time. And this being significant TV time for him. Would, would you agree with that? Probably so. Yeah. For, for Stevie, and he was the spokesman for the group. He looked the part. And, yeah, I guess you could say that, definitely. Uh, so talk me through um, Stevie Richards and why, in your opinion, he didn't have a longer run in the company. Because he, he was here in a few different incarnations, and it feels like he never really, uh, you know, Curried the favor of Vince McMahon. Did Vince not get him? Was somebody not a fan of his? Of course, he had a brief little stint in WCW, but towards the end of his ECW run, he was getting a pretty sizable push there. So there were certain fans who who had been conditioned to think that he could have been a pretty significant player, but it feels like he was always just kind of lost in the shuffle in the WWF. He, he might have been a significant player in the bingo hall, but when you get into the larger waters, there's just a lot more fish in that ocean that you either have to be extra special. And I don't think that Stevie had that special it factor to set him apart from everybody. I think that the right to censor this gimmick was something that he could kind of sink his teeth into. People could believe. And it worked for him, but I don't think that, that Stevie was unique enough to stand out from the crowd. Well, let's talk about Bull Buchanan. Uh, we haven't talked about him much on the show before here. We talked about him briefly in our John Cena episode, which is available in the archives. Uh, but do you got any good Bull Buchanan stories? God damn, he's Bull Buchanan. He's fucking badass. Bull Buchanan was one of... Corny's guys from OVW that uh, Jim had recommended, a big, just nasty, young bruiser. He was a big guy, had good size, and he was decent in the ring. But he didn't have a whole lot of personality, so you really had to, you had to mask Bull. You had to surround him with props. We thought putting him with this group would give him the ability to maybe grow and be able to spin out of it at some point, but... 
he didn't have the personality to stand on his own right now. Well, obviously, Stevie Richards is the spokesman here, and this is giving him an opportunity to shine. Bull had kind of been lost in the shuffle a little bit, but Godfather was over like Rover, and now you make him the good father. Uh, who booked this shit? Whose idea was this? Why did you guys want to get away from hose? <laughs> we had hose. You did. In this match. Yeah, there were hoes and we'll get there, but it feels like this is one of the more over characters based on crowd reaction. Um, is it just, Hey, let's freshen him up. Wh- whose idea is that? Well, not only freshen him up, but if you're going to make him a heel, then you, you take all of those things away from him that made him cool. And it was exactly what the PTC, the parent teacher council, what they were yelling and screaming all about was how bad we were. We had a pimp with hose talking about lighting the blunt up, you know, fire one up for your pimp daddy and all this crap. So take that away from him and put him in that role of the asshole talking about everything that's wrong with the WWF and with America at that time. It was a good role for him. They take on Rikishi and too cool. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about Rikishi in long form at some point. Uh, it's, he is one of the more interesting WWF careers that I think is kind of underrated and would make for a really interesting podcast just because there's so many twists and turns along the way. But too cool is somebody we haven't really talked a whole lot about. We've briefly touched on Brian Christopher in the past, but I think Scotty too hotty is probably the more underrated of the group. Um, I don't know why he doesn't necessarily get his due. But, man, everything he does in this match gets over. The worm gets over. His work is solid. Um, When he starts clapping his hands over his head, which seems like such an old-school move, the whole crowd does it. They have their support. How fucking over was too cool here? They were over. That whole group was. It was Rikishi and the dancing and the colorful outfits, everything about them that time and the timing of the gimmick, it simply worked. You talk about Scotty Too Hottie. Here was a kid that was working independence. He had come in for us, and he had been an enhancement talent. On the show that Pat and I went to go and uh, see Tara Rising uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Tell everybody who Tara Rising is, the independent wrestler Tara Rising. Yes. Pat and I went to go see this kid, and at the show, we saw uh, Scotty. And we had seen Scotty do come in and do enhancement work, but Scott was one of the featured performers of this show. And he looked great. He, he looked like a little Shawn Michaels in that environment. So we came back and said, well, shit, why don't we, why don't we try something with Scotty? And brought him in and tried to, you know, started to feature him. In this team, at the right time, right place, um, took off. And it's nice to see young guys that were busting their ass so many years ago to finally get a break and hit it big. And I thought that uh, Scotty did a great job and was one of those young talents that was able to flourish and really realize his dream here. Uh, the finish comes, which I thought was, was kind of fun when he sets up the worm, uh, and then actually gets super kicked for his troubles by Stevie Richards and Richards gets the pin. 
which the fans boo and Ross classified as a, an upset. I, I didn't really understand this rating. I thought the crowd was really, really hot for this. Wade Killer gave it a star and a half. Uh, he did note that even the heel commentator Lawler was siding uh, against the RTC. PTC. Um, well, that's the parent no. teacher oh, council, but the, your, your group is called the RTC. I don't know if you remember. Gotcha. Um, so let's talk about the hose. So if you haven't watched this in a while, you might be surprised to know that there's two hoes here and they actually come out with Rikishi since he's now the good father. Uh, Stevie Richards took them to task because they're, they're doing this show in North Carolina, uh, the quote unquote Bible belt of America. And so for some reason they're not cheering RTC and instead they're cheering the hose, uh, and the hose actually get involved when the good father is on the floor and he pushes them down by their face. Um, the rumor and innuendo is that one of these ladies would go on to be Victoria, the women's champion. Uh, she was brought in by Rick Bassman and the other lady, according to the rumor and innuendo is a lady named Frosty, who is a full-time dancer that Rick Bassman thought he could get a gig here. So what strip club did you find Frosty at and how difficult was it to talk a female wrestler who's probably going to be a hall of famer into being a hoe? Well, first of all, uh, Lisa was not a female wrestler at the time. She was in just a training. Got it. She just was a, a Huh? Just a hoe. Got it. Yeah, well, she was in training, and she was a fitness model. Hoe and Frosty training. was also in training. Both of them were uh, training at Rick Bassman's school at the time is, is where I got both of them at the, uh, the Hoes Are Us Academy. <laughs> you know there's an academy for that. So you can be like a, a certified hoe? Well, we needed a working hoe, and Lisa was by far the better of the two as far as the working went. Well, you can see her work online. Uh, th- this show did big business. They started it uh, by announcing a $1.1 million gate, and that was even announced on TV by Jim Ross. That, that stood out to me when this show started. It, it felt a little bit out of character for them. Was this a way to just kind of brag about their financial success or to stick it to WCW or, uh, why do you remember that actually being part of, cause it feels like Jim Ross would have been given permission or specifically rather told to say that probably because it was one of the biggest gates in North Carolina history, probably the, so is it brag about it and, and, you know, spread your wings and flaunt. What would have been bigger? I don't know. What would yeah. have been bigger? I don't know. I think that's probably I think the biggest. at that time, it was one of the biggest in North Carolina. So Yeah, it drew 17,000 fans. Uh, it's worth mentioning uh, that, that this took place right there in North Carolina. And um, I, I don't think that a lot of people understand what a hotbed of wrestling North Carolina was. This show specifically was in Raleigh, but Greensboro was the home of Starcade. And obviously, Charlotte was a big wrestling town. And we've kind of went through it through the years. There were times when the WWF was not drawing huge there. Specifically, we covered that in great detail in 1988. Do you think at the time that was not so much based on um, wrestling being down as much as it was the fans in that state were more of a Jim Crockett variety wrestling fan? But by 2000, fucking everybody's a WWF fan, right? I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, locally, they were brought up on the NWA and Crockett. 
Right. Who are the outsiders? Well, next up, we've got uh, highlights of Kurt Angle arriving at the arena. Uh, we get a recap here from Heat, where Jonathan Coachman catches him when he walks in, and he's trying to ask him about taking advantage of Stephanie uh, this past week on SmackDown. So to kind of give you the backstory here, there was a situation where um, Kurt Angle is checking on Stephanie, and she has not yet got her inflatables, and she's passed out on the couch. And she has an SMH shirt on, which I think is hilarious. Um, obviously, that's Stephanie McMahon Helmsley, but uh, in texting, it means something else. And he kisses her, and she doesn't fight it. And now, of course, this is an issue because Triple H is married to Stephanie. That's kind of the H in SMH. Uh, and so when she comes in, uh, she asked Coachman if Triple H is around, and Coachman says not yet. I don't know why she doesn't know where her husband is, but she doesn't. But Coachman does say that Angle's over there. So Stephanie walks in the opposite direction. Later, we see Kurt Angle enter Stephanie's locker room, but the camera did not follow. Then we cut to a Michael Cole interview with Shane McMahon, and they're trying to ask Shane about his sister Stephanie. Shane says he supports her decision no matter what. And then Blackman shows up and Shane gets out of there. So we're going to go to a match, but I find this interesting here because it almost feels like the rock being the WWF champion here is secondary and that the primary storyline is triple H and Kurt angle feuding over Stephanie, not so much the world title. How does our focus get shifted here? Whose idea is this? Well, it was the fact that Kurt and Triple H were both going for the championship, and they had the match where it was a three-way with the winner was going to get the shot at the championship, and both Triple H and Angle had got the pin. So they awarded both men the winner, which is how they got to the triple threat. So the entire story did center around the championship, but the subplot, was the love triangle with Stephanie, Kurt, and Triple H. What it was, it was centered all around the championship. It was Stephanie kind of going for wanting her husband to be the champion, but then is there this divided loyalty where could there be something between Kurt and Stephanie? You never know. Do you remember shooting this uh, Stephanie McMahon, Kurt Angle makeout scene? I did not shoot that. Uh, that was a Brian Gewurtz production. This was during a time that I was doing a, a lot of guerrilla position and, and doing more administrative duties I thought, at this point. I thought you were about to say, this is during a point when I was doing a lot of drugs. Uh, so catch me up here. Hypothetically, would Vince McMahon have, have really liked the idea that Stephanie was making out with an Olympic gold medalist? No. <sighs> Get in there, pal. Plant some of those gold metal lips on my little princess. Mm. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Uh, so X-Pac pins Road Dog after about four and a half minutes. Uh, at some point, Road Dog blocks the X-Factor and then goes for the pump handle suplex. But X-Pac manages to mule kick out of that and hit the X-Factor for the clean win. Uh, after the match, X-Pac tries to make good here and says something like, hey, the better man won. Let's put this behind us. 
Of course, dog has nothing to do with that. Kicks him, pump handle, slams him, gives him the uh, crotch chop. This gets a star and a half. What do you think of this match here? And fucking how over was Road Dog? So far, I'm not impressed with the show. <laughs> um, wasn't crazy about really uh, either of the first two matches. But yes, Road Dog was over like Rover. And both those guys were. It was the, you know, the post DX era, but they were live. They were live for the dog. And I just wa- I just wanted more because both guys are such great workers. I wanted more of a match and didn't get it. Well, is that because of the time limitation you guys put on them giving them under 5 minutes? Uh that and and just I don't know if there was a lot of chemistry with them against one another. They had great chemistry as a team. I just don't know if there was enough chemistry with them working against one another. X-Pac was so underrated uh, during this time, and, and I feel like he never really gets his just due. And whenever we talk about him, somebody inevitably t- winds up tweeting me about the phrase X-Pac heat. That's something a lot of wrestling fans like myself have heard for a long time. What, in your opinion, is X-Pac heat, and when did it become a thing? I have absolutely no idea. First time I've ever heard the term X-Pac heat. I don't know if it means they take a doo-doo in your sandwich or what. Eddie Guerrero told Shauna he wanted her to be happy. Uh, and Shauna said that one of them is going to be happy. And then we see Trish Stratus giving herself a pep talk that she's more of a centerfold than China. Uh, and Val snaps, what the hell are you talking about? And he wants to focus on the match at hand. You know, when I saw this, I guess a couple things jumped out at me. First of all, how great did China look here? This is the best she ever looked. She's a, she looks like another person from who we've seen before. It's clear that you guys have made, and she's made a concerted effort to change her look. Uh, but she looked like a superstar right here. And, and I loved this angle with Eddie. What did you think of her look here and the pairing of her with Eddie? Well, this was also during the time of the, the playboy, the, the first playboy shoot as well. Uh, China looked great this period. The pairing with Eddie, magic. Eddie Guerrero, you put him in any situation, and Eddie Guerrero's going to shine. China was, she, during this time with China, was a bit of a difficult time because her and Hunter were were together in real life. And she wanted to be, she wanted to wrestle guys. She felt she was a good enough worker that she could hang with the guys and she felt she was big enough and that she could have believable matches with guys. On the other side of that, Vince felt that she could help elevate the girls and that by her working with the girls and being the female champion, would give credibility to that championship and that she could probably help bring the girls along. And it, it just felt like a constant battle during this time frame. And in the middle was Eddie and Eddie was holding it all together and making everything entertaining and doing everything that he could on his end. So I just, for me, when I watched this, I just kind of had the shivers remembering 
some of the conversations with China where she felt that she should have been working with the guys and battling for the WWF championship. And I didn't see that. And Vince didn't see that. Well, it's fascinating to me that you say that because of what we're going to talk about in a minute, but we'll circle back, I guess. Val Venus here looks like a totally different Val Venus from a few years prior. He's wearing just all white here, um, you know, white trunks, white boots, and he's got the short hair. Uh, and he's the Intercontinental Champion, all of which I kind of forgot about here. Uh, what can you tell us about the evolution of the Val Venus character and the version that we're seeing here as he teams uh, with Trish Stratus? Trying to get Val away from the porn star and the long hair and the sleazy look and just trying to get people to forget about that a little bit, get him out of the purple and let's change his look and change his persona where he's not talking about how big his dick is and make him a little bit more of a serious wrestler. Talk me through, it feels like it's a, it's a conscious effort here to change up the Godfather and Valvinus, two of your more controversial characters when you've got one who's a porn star and one who's a pimp. And now you've kind of whitewashed them both. Is this, you know, word from the top, we've got to get away from some of these more controversial characters and, and what brings that about? Is it the PTC and their pressure? There was, yes, there was a lot of pressure on us and we were trying to make a conscious, conscious effort. There was less of the DX, um, vulgarity, if you will. And we just scaled back a little bit during this time. So yeah, it was a conscious effort to kind of clean up the act. And I don't remember, uh, I think Val went on to, to join the, uh, right to censor right. shortly after this. Well, let's talk about this match. They go, uh, seven minutes and 10 seconds. And here's, what's interesting. It's a mixed tag match, but the fucking intercontinental title is on the line. This is the title that Shawn Michaels put on the map. Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect, Razor Ramon, all your favorite working horse wrestlers all the way back to Ricky Steamboat to Rock Macho Man Randy Savage. And here Val Venus has it, and he's defending it against Eddie Guerrero in China. Uh, Val, well, and technically Trish Stratus, too. Te- yeah, technically Trish Stratus. At some point, Val yanks China down by the hair. So we've seen a lot of that so far. Let's rewind to the first match. We had both of the hoes pushed down onto the floor by their face. And now here we've got dudes wrestling chicks and pulling them down by their hair. Um, anyway, China takes a bump from Val. And then when she gets up, she ducks the double clothesline. Uh, when Trish goes for a clothesline off the ropes, China just no sells it. And then she press slams, press slams Trish and scores the pin. So now that China has pinned Trish Stratus, she herself is the intercontinental title holder, even though Val Venus was never pinned. Eddie wraps the belt around her waist, um, and the match gets a star and a half. What'd you think here, man? This feels like a fucking low point for this belt. This, this belt had so much history once upon a time, and now China beat Trish for it, and she's the champ. Sell me on it. I hated it. Who liked it? Absolutely hated it. I, I hated, I hate, I hated that the, the females were in there working with the guys. Not a big fan of that. Sure. I hated, I, I've never been a big fan of the, the tag team with the single belt on the line in a tag team match. It works sometimes. 
I, I do like triple threats, but I, I just <sighs> hated it. I, I just hated it. I, I wasn't a fan of it, and I thought that it, it diminished everything that we were trying to do with Val. It, it diminished Val, and you, you had to take it off of her at some point. The, the, the 10 years prior, um, the Intercontinental Belt was held by Mr. Perfect, the Texas Tornado, Bret Hart, Roddy Piper, the British Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, uh, Diesel, uh, hey. Dean Douglas, Goldust, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, The Rock, Owen Hart, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock, and then it would go on to be held by Chris Jericho. Uh, Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Jeff Hardy. I mean, big time players. And I get all that. And there's going to, there's going to be people that are going to come back and say, but what a great moment. Well, the thing is China became the intercontinental champion as well. Here's my thing though. Me personally, I didn't like it. She had already beat, you know, Jeff Jarrett in the good housekeeping match the prior year. And now she's got it again. So I didn't like that either. The footnote in history is China's a fucking two-time intercontinental champion, but once by winning a good housekeeping match against a guy who held the company up for money, according to the rumor and innuendo. And, and the next time she pinned Trish Stratus in a mixed tag to win it. So you could say that it's, it's great for women, but is it really when they win it this way? It just feels like a mockery. I, again, I, I hated it. I hated it for every reason. Yeah, hated it for all those reasons. I'm sure Mr. Perfect is tickled. Um, highlights are aired here from the WWF radio segments we were talking about earlier. I guess it's called Radio WWF. Uh, we get you know clips of Mick Foley's commentary on Kurt Angle kissing Stephanie on SmackDown, uh, and then we see Stephanie telling the hairdresser Janet, uh, this is a backstage vignette, that she didn't kiss back, but that Angle is a good kisser. Well, he is a good kisser. How do you, and do you want to elaborate on how you know this personally? Well, I'm just saying. Olympic gold medalist, very good kisser, manly I, kisser. I mean, is, who kisses ass better, you or he? He or who? Pronouns, pal. Uh, what, what I really liked about the clips here of Kurt Angle in that whole kissing segment is he repeated over and over, "I really care about you, Steph. I really care about you, Steph." <laughs> I really care about you, Steph. It was just almost comical. Uh, and, and I guess what I find most hilarious about all of this when I was watching the vignette of him, because they replay this whole kissing thing a lot. It's like the main angle of the whole fucking pay-per-view. Four years prior to this, this dude's winning an Olympic gold fucking medal, and now he's making out with Vince McMahon's daughter on SmackDown. It's it's a weird it's a weird business. Um I don't know where we'll where we'll fit this in if we don't talk about it now. There was news at the time that the Midian character was going to do a naked guy type gimmick, uh, and and Keller wrote in the torch says one WWF wrestler he's the funniest guy in the locker room. He beats Mick Foley even when Foley is on his game. The WWF has to find some way to take advantage of that. As a worker, he is considered passable. If he were over, but until he is over, he is just taking up space. Did you see Midian's personality behind the scenes? And do you agree with the assessment that he was the funniest guy in the locker room? 
one of the funniest guys in the locker room. I'll say this, bless his little heart. Mitty and great personality in the back, but it never translated in front of the audience. It never translated on TV. He was never able to connect to the audience the way that he connected guys in the locker room. And that goes that goes for a lot of different guys, from you know Brad Armstrong to Arn Anderson to Midian. That they're great, entertaining as hell in the locker room, but when they had to get in front of the camera, weren't able to connect in that way. Hey, and Midian was one of them. I forgot when we were talking about the hairdresser segment. You know, the, the ladies had a debate, both Janet and Stephanie. Is Kurt Angle a hottie or a hunk, in your opinion? Are you asking me? Yeah. I mean, it was the debate between the girls in the back. So Tony Schiavone would come down with a solid answer here. I want to know, in your opinion, was Kurt Angle a hottie or a hunk? Oh, a hunk. And and why do you, why do you lean more towards hunk than hottie? Look at him. He's hunky. <laughs> He's just a hunky, hunky. I love <laughs> He's you. He's just hunky. He's just a hunk, a hunk of gold medal. Um... Well, I was in my days working hard on the, the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I felt the song there for a minute. Hypothetically speaking, uh, Johnny Ace, how would he come down on this honker hottie debate? He's a hottie. I just really love the way that he sweats and he glistens. Oh, God. Not like you, boss. Nobody glistens like you. You're magical when you glisten. Kind of like a unicorn. Cowabunga, dude. (laughs) Well, it was raw two hours the next night. But you guys pushed that a lot. I'm sorry, I'm I'm over here. What? Uh, Get back on track, Rick. Why was raw two hours the next night? You guys promoted a lot that it's two hours late. So the show, instead of it coming on... You know, at like 9 Eastern, it's coming on at 11 Eastern. You know, and I don't remember right off the top of my head why you guys would have been delayed here. I'm sure somebody does, and they're going to tweet us. But do you remember why I it was delayed? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I have no idea why you guys did this either. We're talking about Jerry Lawler taking on Taz. Taz, as we've talked about earlier in the show, is still trying to adapt to the WWF style. He comes in as a monster from ECW. Huge push there, one of their central guys, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him here. They've changed his look completely. He's no longer in the singlet. Now he's got, you know, a totally different outfit that's more, um, I don't know, of what the WWF's looking for, I guess. And he's talking about how to get heat, I guess, uh, because he, he mocks, and obviously this was written for him, but we've taken WCW to task on this podcast so often for this, and now here it is on your own program. He goes over to JR and he says, I'd love to slap you across the face, but it looks like God already beat me to it. I just thought that was fucking a horrible line. And considering the hard lines we've taken on this show, saying that that was shitty of WCW and Vince Russo. Now here it is on TV. Do you remember that line being any source of debate? No, it was probably fed to him by Vince McMahon. Well, I just mean, not as to should he have said that. Well, yeah, I guess. No, come on, man. You're talking. You're talking about. Yeah, you know, they've done Mister Heine. 
or Dr. Heine and, and did a, did a whole thing when JR is laying in a hospital, having half of his colon ripped out. And that's, so because there was one other tasteless and it, you know, you, you, here's a guy busting his ass and he's got paralysis in his face with Bell's palsy. Um, cheap heat, cheap, cheap, unnecessary heat. But you don't think this is bullying. I think it's cheap, unnecessary heat. Um, in this angle, of course, we see a series of things happen with Taz, uh, and Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross. At one point, uh, we see Lawler attacked and, uh, he's bleeding. How does Lawler get color in this? Do you recall? Yeah, he got he got popped in the head with whatever the hell he got popped in the head, and the back of his head split open. Lawler's was a hard way. That's what I was. I mean, the way it was positioned, I thought, boy, that can't be business as usual. There was there any sort of heat on them because it feels like you guys would have had that gimmick. How did that go wrong? Oh God, no! Accidents happen. Shit happens sometimes, and even you can gimmick things all day long. Mistakes happen, and sometimes, like especially even if. As you saw in the uh, in the match itself, that was, you know the sugar glass. That stuff still cuts, and it's still dangerous. Yeah, we'll, so, we'll get to that in just a minute. I want to talk about the car. There's a spot where you know Taz goes out back, and he's spray painted up a car, and Lawler comments that that's his rental car, and for some odd reason, as it's completely spray painted, Jim Ross is sitting in the passenger seat. I don't know why you would sit there while someone spray paints your car, but he does. And then Taz rears back and smashes the glass out with a baseball bat. Any memories of shooting this? Whose idea was this? How does this go down? Well, Jr. was waiting for Lawler in the car. Yeah. Cause they ride together. Yeah. So he couldn't see Taz spray painting. I love you. So then when, so then when Taz cut the promo and he heard him and then, hit the baseball bat in the, in the window and got his eye. He couldn't see him. You're a dick. We're getting tweets. Why am I a dick? He was squatted down. <laughs> I don't know how the fuck they did it or why they did it. Well, that's kind of writing the shit then. Well, look, do you want to cover anything else or can we just end this shit show? Tony? God damn. The booking committee did it. This is just, this is our worst show yet. And we've been, we've been on a roll lately. This was a turd. Um, so why is Taz feuding with managers here? Did Wade Killer have that right? You guys thought pairing him with Jerry Lawler would teach him how to fucking work a traditional heel style that you guys wanted him to do. Okay. You know, and, and here's the point in the show where I thought this was one of Taz's best matches he ever had because he actually Lawler slowed it down and they had a match. There was psychology and people actually cared. And Lawler was a popular sure. announcer. Sure. So be able to get some heat on Taz and have him work, have him work with Lawler. You know, last, last week we're being brought to task because Terry Funk had to do a job. Now you're upset because Jerry Lawler, because Terry Funk had to, was doing a job and he's an old veteran. We should take care of uh, the old veterans and they should go over. Now this week, the veteran goes over and it's bad. No, no, no dirt sheet writer saying that I'm saying I was a big Taz fan 
and he came in with a lot of fanfare and you guys put him over Kurt Angle and he gave Kurt Angle his very first loss. And now not that many months later, he's in the middle of the show wrestling an announcer fresh off the desk and losing. So it does feel a little fucking curious to me. And, and well, that's what a we... legend, the king of Memphis. And he, lo- and he lost because he got a candy dish smashed over his head. Well, there's a spoiler for you. So Taz comes out wearing a Jim Ross hat and pretends to be blind with a cane. This cracks me up because this is such a, a stark departure from the way Taz used to approach the ring. You know, when he had the towel over his head and he was being very serious here, he's clearly doing the comedy routine about three and a half minutes into the match. Lawler pulls his strap down. The crowd knows what to do. They pop. Uh, he follows up with a pile driver, but Taz no sells it and pops right back up. And then he whips Lawler towards the ropes, but Teddy long goes down in the process. So Taz starts yelling at Ross. Uh, and then of course he gets the chokehold on Lawler. Uh, and, uh, somewhere in here, Ross stands up and picks up a candy dish that he had just showed on camera a few minutes ago that we've never seen in the history of raw before or broadcasting before. Oh, it's there every week. By God. <laughs> the, the, the announcer's candy dish by God, it's right there. It might be under the table, but it is not huge and oversized and visible on camera. And they made it a point to point it out before. So, you know, it's going to be used. Uh, and Ross breaks it over Taz's head. It shatters into three billion pieces. And then Ross says something like, now you see how it feels, you son of a bitch. And he says he might be in trouble, but Taz got what he deserved. Uh, and there was blood on Taz's head here. Um, so there you go. It's a short but entertaining match. It only goes about four and a half minutes. A star and a half is what Wade gave it. And you thought it was Taz's best match. I actually thought that the match was extremely entertaining. And if you know Taz, and if you know Taz and Taz, Taz's sense of humor, this is probably closer to Taz's real personality than anything he had done to this point. I think most everybody listening knows Taz because of uh, his show, The Taz Show, which is available on Play.it. So there you there go. There you go. Give it a listen. Um, at some point in the match, this is bleeped out now. In the middle of the match, Taz yells, fuck you, to Jerry Lawler. The mic picks it up very plainly, and it's bleeped out on our on our show today on the network. Do you recall there being any sort of heat on Taz for using that language? Oh, hell yeah. There definitely would be heat for cussing on on any show, yes. Pay-per-view so doesn't get a pass. out by Vince McMahon as soon as he walked through the backstage curtain. It, is that a, a particularly bad time to do it since you guys are trying to be so conscious uh, with uh, the whole PTC thing? Anytime on, on television, especially anything that's broadcast, is a bad time to do it. But now, when there's a sensitivity to language and everything else that we're doing under a microscope, yeah, especially bad time. Help me understand. Vince has a problem with this because it's broadcast, but he's cool with chocolate titties. Everybody's cool with chocolate titties. Well, that's not the way you say it, pal. Vanilla titties. Mm. Everybody loves chocolate titties. Mm. Uh, Shane McMahon uh, is reportedly high on Steve Blackman, uh, even though Steve Blackman had earned a rep for not being that awesome to work with. Not because of his attitude, but just because of his in-ring style. That report comes to us from the torch. 
Uh, and they also said earlier in the day, of course, Shane McMahon had to practice this bump on a crash mat and he did it from the set. Uh, and this happens in the afternoon, of course, before they open doors uh, and the WWF obviously wants to take every precaution they can. So they hire some stunt coordinators and they're telling him exactly what to do and what not to do. Not to be overly sensitive here, Bruce. But does anybody, when an idea about a guy falling this far comes up, does anybody say, uh, maybe this isn't the best idea? Well, probably not from the standpoint of when you say, hey, I want to fall and I want to do this bump onto a crash pad and do it. And you know that you're going to be taking a bump. Uh, that's a little bit different situation. And we didn't hire a special stunt man. We had a stunt coordinator that worked for the company, um, by the name of Mike, something or other. He's the gray headed guy. You see at the, the end of the, the match there, somebody Google something or other comma Mike on yeah. Facebook. Let's see if we can't find him. There you go. Um, I'm sorry. What the hell was the question? We're talking about Shane McMahon. And the decision to have him fall 50 feet and, and it's on pay-per-view and maybe even though we could do this, maybe we shouldn't do this. Well, I always hated all the bumps, but at the same time, I'm not the one making the decision. Uh, okay. So I, it's, I, I'm not saying it's, you have to it's defend brought it up, but when it's done with a stunt coordinator and it's safe and you know what the hell they're doing and you practice it. Yeah, it was, it was a perfectly safe bump. I'm not arguing it wasn't safe. My question was, does anybody say this isn't a good idea? Why or, is it not a good idea? Well, because you just had to settle out of court for a shit pile of money for hey. a guy who did a fall that went wrong. Okay. In a completely different situation, a completely different circumstance. And this was something with a crash pad underneath them, no matter where they went, they were going to go through a crash pad and it was laid out well ahead of time, rehearsed several times. And that the feeling was that it was a safe, safe stunt to do. So there was that concern wasn't there as far as doing those kind of stunts in general. Here's my question. I don't think we're a stunt show. Do you think it becomes a, a, a Vince McMahon? I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything I wouldn't do. So since he's not in that position, let's send Shane to do it. Oh, Vince McMahon would do it. And Vince I know does, Vince, I know Vince it. would do it. That's what I'm saying. This is like one of the first times you guys do this fall stunt, uh, post Owen. And I wonder if it was calculated to say, let's have Shane do it and not somebody else. So we don't get this backlash, oh, no. but if Shane no. goes first, okay. no, not at all. Absolutely not. And I believe that it, for this match, it was Shane's idea to do something and do a spectacular bump. Well, where do you think Shane took better bumps off of the Titan Tron or out of helicopters? Uh, you know what? The helicopter, uh, made news. It did. Hey, so, you know, maybe the helicopter, uh, Which Shane, I talked to him the other night. So it was nice to talk to him. Uh, what He's was doing good? Did he call you during the crash? Uh, no, after okay. let me know he was okay. I thought maybe he was calling you on the way down since your brother love and all, and maybe you could, you know, do no. your thing. Okay. No, nothing like that. So Steve Blackman pins Shane McMahon after about 10 minutes. He wins the hardcore title. Uh, and for the first several minutes, it's just Blackman beating up Shane. Uh, at one point, this was kind of fun. He, he takes a trash can, puts it over his head and just wears this trash can out 
with kendo sticks in the ring. I don't know what it did, but it looked cool. It was fun. Uh, Prince Albert and Tess come out and they're helping Shane because this is a no DQ hardcore match, of course. And this is kind of fun, I guess, because you've got uh, Test helping Shane. And in storyline, they haven't always gotten along because of Stephanie. Eventually, uh, Shane tries to get away. Uh, so what do you do when you're running from a badass? Well, you climb up as high as you can, which is what he did uh, off the entrance set. And eventually, Blackman fights his way down and starts to chase Shane up the scaffolding to the top. Um and then he starts hitting Shane with the kendo stick with one hand. And in the corniest looking situation ever, Shane jumps off and takes uh, a big bump into a fall below. Blackman drops the cane, looks at Shane, comes down a couple of notches, uh, and then drops an elbow on Shane from very, very high up and scores the pin. Shane didn't move, and Blackman sold that he was stunned from the fall himself. And then they stretch or Shane out of there. Um, Wade would write the best match on the undercard in part because there was more substance and layers to it than the other matches, but also because of the big stunt bump star in three quarters. what do you think of the match? Do you have anything you can tell us about the fall, Steve Blackman, the finish, the coordination, any of that stuff? Well, Steve Blackman at this point was finally getting some personality and finally getting over. And I think a lot of that has to go to, uh, people would point to the vignettes that he did with Al snow and, and the head cheese right. stuff, which finally got Blackman over and got to see a little bit of uh, personality. And all that was done by Brian Gewertz, who just was trying to get something out of Steve and trying to, get a little bit more personality out of him because Steve was very bland. You know, he, he not a lot of personality. I, you talk to him and there's just wasn't a whole lot there. Badass shoot. Uh, I watched the match and, and had to laugh because it wasn't me doing it, but Blackman had that damn leather strap wrapped around Shane's neck and had him in a half crab and test comes in and clotheslines back. Blackman almost takes Shane's head off. Uh, because of the strap being around Shane's neck. So, unfortunately, Shane was in there with some inexperienced guys, and Shane not being the most experienced of the bunch. But overall, shit, I thought that they had a, a decent match, and the bump, a spectacular bump, it always gets a holy shit and a ooh and an ah from the audience. Um, I like to do maybe one a year, if you're going to do that at all, and be done with it. In this situation, it, I think it helped the match, and I think that it probably made the match more than it would have been had you not done the bump. What would you think of, uh, I mean, obviously, kudos to him for being willing to take a bump, I guess. As we said, it's not necessary, but he did it, so a lot of respect for having the balls to do that. I would not do it. Um, but the the little baby wax with the kendo stick and then, all of a sudden just jumping off came off a little cheese. Don't you think? No, I didn't. I thought that I thought, because again, I thought the first time I went back and watched it, I actually rewound it and he just fell back. Um, could it have done been done better, done more spectacular? Maybe so. But again, 
I'm not going to get up there and do that. And I'm not going to get up that height because I'm afraid of heights. So yeah, kudos to him to have the balls to go up there and do it and fall off, jump off, whatever the hell you want. It's still a spectacular bump. It takes balls to climb up there. No anyway, doubt. Even knowing you have a safety net. No doubt. It's kind of funny to me to watch him climb away though, because it's almost like in a horror movie, you know, where the, the, the baby face you're supposed to be cheering for does all the wrong things. Like, what good can come from climbing up? Uh, anyway, let's move along. Uh, backstage, Stephanie is shown freaking out over Shane's bump. Kurt Angle shows up and tells her Shane had just had the wind knocked out of him and he'll be okay. So Angle starts to hug Stephanie to console her. And this is when Foley walks in and tells Stephanie that he'd give her an update on her brother. So Foley at this point is the commissioner. How do you think he did as the commissioner? And was this really just designed to keep him on TV and doing these vignettes that people had just fell in love with, uh, since it was clear that he, at this point was not interested in, in ring work. Well, we had lost, you know, we lost Steve and star power wise. We were looking for every single bit of star power that we could get. Mick was available and just trying to, again, stack that deck. Put him on TV, make him a commissioner. Mick didn't want to work full-time anymore. He was done at that point and really wanted, you know, at this point in time, Mick Foley is saying, hey, I want to be that guy that really retires when he says he's going to retire, which is kind of funny when you think about it now. Sure. So it's like, okay, well, you can still stay retired, but you can come back and you can be the commissioner and you don't have to work or take bumps or anything like that. So you got the star power of Mick Foley. You got his promo skills and you got him on, on TV every single week. I thought Mick did a really good job here and it was fun to produce some of that shit with him. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, we've got Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho up next. Um, they're doing a two out of three falls match. Benoit would actually get the victory after about 13 and a half minutes, two falls to one. Uh, and, and Keller would write, this was the first real intensity of the night. And it came at the start of this match. Jericho tapped out to the crossface after about three minutes. Uh, and then, of course, Benoit starts going for another crossface as soon as the second fall begins. And this added a level of strategy and realism that you didn't really see a lot of at this time. Uh, so it winds up being a pretty good match. At some point, we see about eight and a half minutes in, Jericho elbows his way out of the German suplex and reverses Benoit into the walls of Jericho. Benoit can't reach the ropes, so he taps uh, right about 8.50. Uh, and the third fall is, of course, on right after that. Uh, they go to about 13 minutes. Somewhere in here, you hear Jim Ross say, whoever wins deserves a title shot. So they're clearly trying to make this you know, kind of a level-up feud here. Jericho hits the lion salt, uh, but then he's selling. Uh, he injured his shoulder on the move, so he can't pin Benoit. And this hints at a Benoit win coming up shortly. And what do you know, Jericho rolls up Benoit, but Benoit rolls through it and holds the ropes for leverage and scores the three counts. So he gets out of there. Uh, overall, Keller says the match had good intensity, but the middle fall dragged during Benoit's stomp fest on Jericho. He still thought it was one of the better matches on the card with three and three quarter stars. Most people would classify this as a bit of a disappointment, though, in all the reviews I read, because the expectation for these two guys is off the charts. And I feel like sometimes 
matches just can't live up to the hype. And I can't help but wonder if that's what happened to this one. Uh, what'd you think of this in hindsight, Bruce? And, and, and how would you rate the match? Well, again, this one has to go in that, in that same category. I said earlier, no, it didn't live up to the hype for me. And even watching it back, it was a good match, but it wasn't spectacular. The only thing to me that <laughs> the best part of the match was the finish, the very end finish and Chris, uh, Chris Benoit, a heel move, grabbing the rope. To me, that part of it, I love the nuances and the little tiny things that mean so much that people miss today. That was being a heel. That was a subtle heel move that made all the difference. And they made the match in the last three seconds with that little move, in my opinion. I thought the buildup for the very finish of it, it all worked. But this match was all about Jericho and Benoit proving that they belonged in a big spot on a pay-per-view. And I thought they delivered in that, but I, overall, yeah, I think everybody was expecting more. And in hindsight, when you watch it back today, it doesn't live up to what both of those guys, in my opinion, were definitely capable of. Uh, next up, we see uh, triple H arriving at the arena. Uh, and he's obviously pissed, uh, given that he's just seen this past Thursday, uh, Kurt Angle making out with his wife. Next up, we've got the match that most people remember from this show. It's the TLC match for the tag team titles. We've got Edge and Christian, the Dudley Boys, and the Hardys. If you haven't watched this match in a long time, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of my more favorite matches. Wade loved it, too. He gave it four and one-quarter stars. It's just a damn car crash, and it goes about 15 minutes. Um, Wade would write all six wrestlers played into the crowd really well as they executed their established hot spots. Uh, and the crowd was into it all the way through the end. Uh, tables and chairs were introduced first, and then you get some of the Dudley tables in there. Uh, you've got Jeff leaping off a very tall ladder with a swanton dive onto a table, just barely missing Bubba, who moved at the last second. Then you've got Bubba climbing to the top and then crashing through a couple of tables at ringside. Then Edge and Christian start to climb, and the crowd is going nuts. Lita knocks it over. Uh, and now both of those guys are straddling the top rope. Matt climbs to the top, and just as he's about to reach it, Devon knocks him out of the ring. He falls through two tables. Lita's checking on him, and Edge Spears are on the floor. So that's like our third or fourth time we've seen a lady take a bump from a guy. Uh, and, and these guys just continue to go back and forth until eventually you've got Edge and Christian swinging on the ladder as Jeff knocking him to the uh, to the mat feet first. Uh, and then Edge and Christian get the belts. So here it is. It's an excellent, uh, one of the very first TLCs and something that people still talk about all these years later. And, and Wade loved it so much. He called it a match of the year candidate. I know you don't like these car crash type matches, but even you have to admit this was fucking fun to watch. Well, I don't, yeah. I know you hate it, but it was entertaining. I do. I, it was entertaining, and I kudos to all six guys in the match. They all busted their ass. I just, I, I, I hate those dangerous kind of matches. I, the, the ladders flying around, and <laughs> the tables and the chair spots. You said it. You know, you talk about. Shane McMahon taking the bump off of the stage being, well, I look like it was fake and he just falls off. 
you know, the same thing can be said about this because, sure. but because it's spectacular and because it's it's in the ring, you lose sight of that stuff. Um, yes, it was a great match. Yes, extremely dangerous. I just my biggest thing with it is is that guys always try and top it. Right. Guys are always trying to look for you know the the higher ladder, more tables, uh, more gaga, more bullshit. And at some point, you have to say enough is enough. These three teams set the bar. Yes. On this, they fuck that. They exceeded the bar. Oh yeah. On this, outstanding. So, hats off to all six guys. Every, every one of them got balls of steel. Um, Jeff Hardy's crazier and fucking uh, shit house rat. But. I just don't, they're not my cup of tea. And I I always hate it when someone would suggest these type of matches for somebody that that you don't have to be in it. But uh, hats off to them. Yes, it was a great match. And yes, it told a great story of a rivalry of three of the best teams uh, in the business at that time. But personally, I just hate watching those because I hate what the toll that it takes on their body and their careers. Oh, no doubt about it. I don't think anybody would argue that these bumps are worth it. You know, this obviously shortens your wrestling career and blah, blah, blah. But man, the shit was 17 years ago. Let's go relive it and appreciate what they did. They've, they've already paid the, the, the price for this many times over by now, I'm sure. And if you haven't already, I, I encourage you to check this show out specifically for this match. Uh, but maybe you just want to skip right to it. It's awesome. Uh, I really dug it. it. It's a highlight for me. It's the thing I remember most about this entire pay-per-view. Uh, but I knew when I watched it, well, fucking Bruce is hating this, everything about it. Um, and I don't hate the athleticism. I don't hate the, the story. I just hate the punishment they're putting their bodies through with those damn, the, the ladder shots and the chairs and the, the tables and shit. Well, what you would have liked to have seen is Edge snatch an arm bar on Matt and work and hold it for about 30 minutes and then have the other guys on the outside start stomping their foot on the apron yes. and clapping, yelling, go Matt, go, 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 Matt, Matt, go. go. Yeah. 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 Good shit. Uh, triple H demanded an explanation from Stephanie for the kiss on SmackDown. I don't know why he hasn't seen his wife since Thursday, but here we are. She was mad at uh, and Stephanie said angle took advantage of her. And she assured him that Triple H is the only man in her life. Um, the cat did not only have one man in her life. She had Al Snow with her here tonight. And uh, she beat Terry, who tagged along with Saturn. And they had a thong stink face match that went three minutes and five seconds. Um, I can't wait to talk about this because in this same show so far, you've talked about how you're toning it down. And DX needs to tone down some of their lewd, uh, you know, behavior and there's no more pimps and there's no more porn stars. So let's have two women go out there with their buttholes hanging out and, uh, let's have them rub their buttholes in each other's faces to determine a winner who booked this shit. I didn't see any buttholes. Well, you need to get that HD. Damn. Um, talk me through this butthole match. <laughs> It's a stink face match. God damn. Let's process this. This Semantics, pal. All right. First of all, I guess I should ask, how many of the boys did the cat give that stink face to? You got me. 
Well, no, she didn't get me. So well, she I fucked absolutely, up. Have absolutely no idea. She fucked no up. Comment. She fucked up. Uh, <laughs> so th- when Terry strips down to a thong bikini, Saturn runs out and covers her up, which is an excellent way to get heat. I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, of course, he's sporting his European title at the time. Uh, and then, of course, Cat strips down to her bikini. Uh, and they were getting those upskirts like we talked about last week, where as the girls would bend through the ropes, there'd be a cameraman right there for her OBGYN checkup. Um, uh, who was in the truck saying, get me more beef, and why was it Kevin Dunn? You're just going to keep going there, uh, and I'm going to keep not going there. It's a joke. Uh, uh, I don't think that this match and and I, I look at it and just go, Oh, it was brutal. It had its spot on the card, I guess. But the lack of, I'm not going to say wrestling ability because, uh, bless their little hearts. Neither one really had much wrestling ability. Well, that's not true. There's room and innuendo that they were a hell of a hand. Hey, so they're doing lots of deep crotch slams. Uh, and I've, they nev- were. I've never heard uh, Jim Ross call it that before, but he mentioned well, that, that's because they're going extra deep, uh, extra deep in here for the slam there, Conrad. Um, I think deep crotch slam should be our next T-shirt. Your thoughts? Well, the deeper the crotch, the deeper the slam there, pal. You get, you got to get in there deep, and, and once you get within the crotch, you grab, you snatch it. You snatch when you get inside the crotch, and then bam, in a slam. They See, call that a deep crotch snatch slam. Nanny Hodge, <laughs> when he showed me the deep snatch crotch slam... You have to go, and it's all in—it's all in the knuckle when you get in there. It makes a difference. There's a spot in here where uh, Saturn is trying to um, defend Terry, and he pushes Cat down. So it's like the fifth time we've had a guy involve himself in a match with a woman like this. And then at one point. Um, you know, this is what happened. The cat gave Terry some head and then spread her butt cheeks in her face. And that was the end of the match. Um, Thank God it was the end of the match. How about Al, how about Al Snow flipping her around for the reverse uh, shoulder shot? Yeah, uh, the guys knew what they were doing. They made sure there was lots of butt stuff in there. And when they were getting the girls back in the ring, they were getting handfuls themselves. This is just... I mean, it's a little embarrassing. Here's the thing. If somebody came over to my house unannounced just to visit when I was watching this for research for this show, they would look at me and say, what the fuck are you doing with your life? And I would be very, they would not. And I would be very proud that they have never seen our live show because that's way more offensive than what this was. But still, even though it was embarrassing, I cannot lie. This was pretty damn roll tide, but it is amazing to me that the finish of the match is when the cat gave Terry some head and then spread her butt cheeks on her face. Roll Tide. Who's the agent for this butt cheek match? Oh, maybe Tony Gurria. Back in my day, we never did the, uh, the butt 
the buttocks in the face, but I'll try it and give it my best shot there. Maybe is, if you if you spread the butt cheek would be better for the stinky face. Is anybody instructing these girls on what to wear? Because I found it like borderline fucking dangerous that these girls are out here wrestling on a wrestling mat with like platform high heels. Holy shit. Platform high heels. My God, I, I, I don't think that, that Terry had more than an inch to balance on. Yeah, it was. Well, don't it, talk about gold dust like that, dangerous. you fucker. That's, that's, well, that's, that's a, don't talk about gold dust like that, you fucker. Easy that's, now. Easy. that's not yes, cool. They, they were wearing, their, their footwear was suspect at best. So who's dressing them here? I know, I know who's dressing the cat. Jerry Lawler is, but is somebody instructing them on here's what you need to wear? Because this, I don't know. This whole thing is weird. They I, did it all on their own. Hypothetically speaking, how would Dusty describe this match? Maybe this shit was god awful fucking horrible. They got their titties all out. They're putting the butt sheath. And hang on, baby. I'm going like, to let me fly my booty into your nostril area. Shake a little bit. Ding, ding, ding. Ring that motherfucking bell. Then motherfucker be over fucked up like a monkey if you will, motherfucker. All right. We're not going to get better than that. Let's move along. Next up, we've got footage of Bradshaw and Farouk bartending at WWF New York. You guys are pushing that like a monster here. Um... And then Bradshaw toasted Vince McMahon uh, with a bottle of Jack Daniels. It's time to get to our, I guess, co-main event, Undertaker and Kane. Uh, This goes about six and a half minutes, and Kane's wearing a new outfit here. Uh, He doesn't cover his shoulders, and uh, you get to see more of his physique. Kane is as big as a house here. He's probably at his most jacked, uh, and and Taker here is kind of in transition. He's doing the American badass character. Uh, and they meet in the aisle and Taker starts going for Kane's mask early. And Ross makes mention that he doesn't remember anyone ever going for it before. So it's clear that's going to be the story that they tell. Uh, and he manages to rip the mask about two and a half minutes in, uh, and then Taker nails Kane with stairs at ringside. And now we've got some blood. And then all of a sudden, uh, before you realize it, uh, Taker has Matt, uh, Kane's mask off completely. And Kane manages to cover his face with his hair and his hand uh, and then threatens uh, to retreat, and he does. He heads straight towards the back. So Taker's music starts for no apparent reason because technically the match never officially began with no opening bell. Um, So I guess there wasn't really a match here, but the whole segment was about six and a half minutes. Um, The finish, or I guess lack of one, is one that Wade was critical of, but he still gave it two stars. This seems kind of out of place here, Bruce. What do you think of unmasking Kane like this without more pomp and circumstance, so to speak? It was out of place, and it was a Band-Aid to get through the Big Show debacle. You know, there was a plan to do Big Show and Undertaker here. Big Show not being in shape made made him change plans midstream. So Kane got turned heel and got thrown in to basically an old program with his brother, the undertaker. So let's have a fight and not really have a match, but it went nowhere. It did. It, it didn't do a lot for either guy. It was a decent fight, I guess for the time being, it was unique. 
But yes, it was a wasted opportunity and Undertaker taking a mask off without any real build up to it. Especially like, you know, we did it later on with Kane unmasking himself with RVD in the garden, but this was just anticlimactic. And I don't think it did a lot for either guy. No, I would agree. And it's kind of, um, I don't know. It feels like a throwaway match. You know, both of these guys are bona fide main eventers. You know, Undertaker, obviously, you know, a legend even by this point. And it doesn't feel like a very memorable SummerSlam moment. Uh, next up, we go to Kurt Angle's locker room. He dials a cell phone. Uh, and in Triple H and Stephanie's office, their cell phone rings. Stephanie picks it up and looks nervous and says, Hello, Mom. And Triple H said he wants to talk to her. When he says hello, there's no other an- there's no answer on the other end. So Triple H tells Stephanie that his mom or her mom just hung up on him. So they're really playing this whole Kurt Angle, Stephanie Angle pretty hard here. Uh, Angle's out first, and he takes the house mic and acknowledges that there are a lot of people expecting an apology for him kissing Stephanie. And his apology is that he's sorry he didn't do it a heck of a lot sooner. He's an Olympic gold medalist. He didn't win those medals from backing down or second-guessing himself, and that he can give Stephanie the type of passion that Triple H could never give his wife. So, of course, Triple H is out. They start brawling. The match doesn't officially start until The Rock's entrance, uh, and that's when uh, now we see that Triple H has told Stephanie to stay in the locker room. Uh, Triple H goes out to the Spanish announce table and tosses the monitors to the side, goes for the pedigree, and the table collapses. Uh, Kurt Angle lands awkwardly on his face, and the timing of the miscue couldn't have been better since at that point in the match, Angle was supposed to be knocked out anyway. So The Rock comes down when his music's out. Um, The story uh, that we hear in the newsletters right after is that when Triple H asked Angle if he was okay, all he hears is snoring. Uh, When Angle does come back later in the match and finish his role, Everyone is super impressed. Specifically, uh, Kurt Angle recently told this story to our good buddy Justin uh, over at Sports Illustrated. If you haven't already, check out Extra Mustard. Uh, They're really putting us over hard on Sports Illustrated. We appreciate their support. They've been with us almost from the beginning, uh, and Justin really takes care of us. Uh, Angle said, Triple H led me through the match. As far as being a wrestler, he's up there in the top ten. His working capability is phenomenal, and he has the ability, and very few can do this, to adapt to any situation. And the only ones I've known that could do that are Austin, Undertaker, and Triple H. If something tragic happens, they adapt so fast. When I got my concussion at SummerSlam 2000, Triple H did so much for me in that match. When I went through that table, I was out. Stephanie brought me back out, and when we got back to the ring, I asked her, what do I do? And she said, when Rock's foot hits the ropes, pull him out. So I grabbed him by the foot and pulled him out of the ring and then looked at Stephanie. She said, throw him into the steps. So I throw him into the steps. And then she said, get the hell in the ring. There was a spot where he was going to hit me with a sledgehammer, but I had a concussion. And at that point, I don't even know what I was doing out there. My mind was blank. I came to two hours after the pay-per-view. There was a spot where Triple H was going to hit me with a sledgehammer and he put my hand, he put his hand on my head to make sure I ducked so he could hit the rock with the sledgehammer. If you watch it over, you'll see that I was really clueless. He was looking out for me the entire match. They literally had to walk me through every step of the match to make sure I was safe. I don't remember any of it, 
but for them, it must have been a nightmare. Triple H is one of the best I've ever seen. So I'm sure we'll talk about the match in a minute, but let's talk about this concussion situation. Obviously, reading that in 2017 is like, wow, what the fuck is going on? This is so dangerous, knowing what we know about concussions and head injuries now. But we didn't know that back then. Back then, it was, oh, he got his bell rung, rub some dirt on it, get back out there. And there was great pride in doing that. That would never happen today. You were there. Do you know as soon as he rolls over after that table collapses, oh, he's fucked? We knew once I saw Triple H talking to him. Yeah. And I've got the gorilla position. uh, I had several different shots of the the action the area so i had other camera shots where i could see and you can actually see it on on the cut that's on the network right now but you see triple h talking to him you can actually see hunter kurt tries to get up and you see hunter pull kurt down and tell him to stay down um and then kurt lets the referee know and the referee uh went to kurt but there was there was a spot there and it was just a spot to get the match started and for Rock and Hunter to go one-on-one for a while and get Kurt out of the match, and then Kurt would get involved later, but never to come back. So when Kurt was out and the trainer and the paramedics went down to talk to Kurt, he had been he had been knocked silly, and he was out of it. So the decision was made, bring him back and get him checked out. And if he can't go, then we'll just have a single match with Triple H and The Rock. So when Kurt came back, they made the decision that, okay, you know, we'll see how he is, go get him checked out. And it was Kurt's decision. And I personally talked to Kurt that night uh, backstage and asked him, I said, are you okay to go? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just got my bell rung. I'm fine. I've got it. Like you said, same situation today. Never would have happened. He never would have gone back out there. But, you know, kudos to Kurt, kudos to Rock and Hunter for having the match that they had without him and then being able to adapt when Kurt came back out for the finish. But Kurt, you know, uh, definitely told us, no, I'm good, I'm good to go. And the the doctor, the trainer, everybody felt, you know what, He's, I think he's all right. He just... Got knocked silly. And again, we had no idea. We didn't know the shit <laughs> that they know now about concussions and head injuries and all that other shit then. No shit, because he was cleared to perform the very next night. Uh, they go 20 minutes total. Uh, technically, this is a three-way. The crowd pops hard for The Rock. They're all over The Rock and love him. Um, the the uh, people's elbow gets a phenomenal pop when it goes down. We haven't talked about the people's elbow a lot. Do you remember anybody in particular saying, I ain't fucking selling that. That's shit. I'm not doing that. It was one of the most over moves in the business. I'm not arguing that, but it feels like this is the time when guys have really strong opinions about stuff and finishes. Um, did anybody balk at a people's elbow? Did, the, did Stone Cold ever say, oh, yeah, man, just fucking... Hook me in the middle after the people's elbow. I want to get pinned with that. If you want to get B, you want to get B with their finish. And he did. So 
you know, no, it was over. And he was one the most over guy in the territory. That's his finish. You're going to take his finish and sell it. It was hokey as shit. But, but you know what? It worked. Uh, the claw was hokey as shit. Here's, the here's, heart what, punch here's was what I hokey love. Shit. You know it's a shit finish. And I'm wanting you to tell me if anybody else thought it was a shit finish. And you just feel the need to defend the shit finish rather than telling me. I am going to defend the shit finish because it worked. I'm not asking you to defend it. I'm asking if anyone else didn't like it. I'm sure a lot of people didn't like it, but you asked me if people had a problem taking it and balked at taking it and refused to take it. No. Okay, cool. Glad if we had work, this talk. If you're working with The Rock and you're on top, you're happy to be working on top, and if he's going over and that's what he's going over with, that's how he's taking it. So help me understand. For the 19th time here on the show, we have a man hit a woman. Um... Triple H nails Stephanie in the face. Uh, she takes a bump. She's knocked out. This feels like you guys are doing this almost in every match. Why, when you're so quote unquote sensitive about PTC, is there so much violence against women on the show? I can't answer that one. I, I don't know what the hell their rationale was. You mean our? Yeah. Hour. <laughs> uh, well, here you go. Uh, let's talk about the finish here. Rock gives Triple H uh, the people's elbow for the pin. Rock is celebrating his win in the ring. Uh, and Ross and Lawler wonder if Triple H hit Steph intentionally. Um, Dave forced a habit. Wade would say a good main event, especially the pre-match Triple H versus Angle action and the dramatic finishing minutes. Rock Triple H action had a rerun feel to it, and it seemed to be filler until Steph and Angle returned to the match. Angle picked Steph and shot Triple H a stare before returning to the back. Uh, Angle fit in just fine with the two top dogs in this high-pressure spot on the pay-per-view. He gave it four stars. So I do feel like the world title here is still a little bit of an afterthought because the big story is Angle going down, uh, Angle making the heroic comeback because Steph is saying, do it for me, do it for me. Uh, she goes down, and then he carries her to the back, and this feels like it's the primary source of the pay-per-view. But let's talk about the creative here. There's been lots of rumor and innuendo out there that this all happens at a time when Chris Kresge is the head writer. And many wrestling fans have heard for years and years that this guy is the fucking real genius behind WWF creative. Uh, can you speak uh, about Chris Kresge and his involvement? He's somebody who's kind of a mythical figure to wrestling fans who've been paying attention. Chris Kresge was the gentleman that was brought on to be the head writer after Vince Russo had, had left. There was... A little gap there, Tommy Blanche and Brian Gewertz had been hired on to help Russo and Ed Ferrara right before they left. So Brian was on, Tommy Blanche was on, and then uh, Vince had made a decision to bring on a head writer to oversee both shows and brought on Chris Kresge. Now, no one really knows where the hell Chris came from. Chris had done a showrunner on some talk shows. He had written a book on the Brady Bunch and had written a book on uh, William Shatner. Kresge's a super nice guy. 
is I was going back and I was reading things about SummerSlam 2000, and I, I started getting into reading some comments from people talking about how Chris Kresge was the genius that held the WWF together after the Attitude Era and was able to cohesively keep all the storylines together and had these storyboards for all the top talent and was this genius at putting together television. I reiterate, Chris is no longer with us. Chris passed cancer in 2005. Unfortunately, no, Kresge was not, um, in my opinion, and I, I would dare say that anybody that worked with him at the WWE would share this opinion. I never saw Chris do anything. Chris never produced one pre-tape. Chris never ran one production meeting. The At that time, uh, the few writers' meetings and creative meetings that I was in for television with Chris, Vince would start the meeting off with, all right, Brian, what do you got? And turn to Brian Gewertz, who would basically have a list of his ideas in a, in a format for the show. Um, Kresge would end up typing it all up and turning it into Vince. But I would have to give the credit as far as the creative and the cohesiveness to, to hold everything together for the years that Kresge was, quote, head writer has got to go to, to, to Brian and, and, and Brian and, to a lesser extent, Tommy Blanchett, who did do all that. I'll never forget the very first meeting that Kresge came into, and Vince got up in front of us and told us about that Chris is going to be the new head writer, and he, he's got this board in his office, and he's got everybody's name on it, and he's going to have stories for everybody, and he's going to have this big board. And the running joke in the agent meeting for the next six months was, has anybody seen that big board? You know, he's got a board in his office with everybody's name on it, so he's got to be a genius. Got to shatter the myth. Um, Kresge, nice guy, but I never, I, I don't know of one idea that he ever came up with. I don't know, of, like I said, he never did a production meeting. He never produced a pre-tape. He would sit and watch baseball during the shows. Big baseball fan, big Mets fan, but just not the case. Uh, for, for that time, it was all Brian and, uh, and Tommy Blanche and Vince McMahon for the most part. He told me to ask you uh, about Vinny's Steakhouse. Do you want to hit us with that one? Well, Vinny's Steakhouse, there was an advertisement in the middle of the pay-per-view for Vinny's Steakhouse. And Vinny's Steakhouse was run by a gentleman by the name of Dusty, who was Vince McMahon's best friend growing up. And I always get asked about there was an episode of, of Raw around this time where it was dedicated to Rose. And Rose was Dusty's mom who ran Vinny's Steakhouse. And people, I just figured people would ask about what the hell Vinny's Steakhouse was. Vinny's Steakhouse was Vince's best friend's steakhouse who named the steakhouse Vinny's, and that's where we all partied in Raleigh, North Carolina all the time. And it was a great steakhouse, unfortunately out of business now, but it was a good time. It was in the middle of the pay-per-view. We, uh, we actually asked you on Facebook, hey, do you have a question? What would you hashtag love to know about SummerSlam 2000? 
you can participate in this every week over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Uh, let's rapid fire some Facebook questions. Are you ready, Bruce? I'm ready. What was Jerry Lawler's relationship like with his real life son, Brian Christopher during this point? I don't want to say it was a strange, but I don't know that Jerry really had much of a father son relationship at any time with Brian. Um, it was distant at best. They, they were cordial, but I never really saw a strong father son relationship at any time with, uh, Brian and Jerry. Who put together the TLC match, meaning who were the agents? I think it was Michael Hayes. Uh, with it being in the Hardy's backyard, was there ever any real thought to giving them winning? There probably was, especially if Michael Hayes was involved. But it, the storyline, you know, was all about Edge and Christian going over, so not for long. We've all heard the story about Triple H and Kurt Angle, where Triple H in a meeting said something like Kurt Angle was little. Was there ever any animosity at this point between Kurt Angle and Triple H in real life? At this point, as far as Kurt to Triple H, no, because Kurt was pretty damn naive and Kurt was just happy to be there and wanted to prove himself. I do remember Triple H talking about how Kurt was too small and who's going to believe that. But Kurt being an Olympic gold medalist, once you get in the ring with him, he makes you believe her pretty damn quick. Uh, any heat on Shane from the boys for taking these kinds of bumps? Probably so. There were probably some guys that felt that he was taking liberties, being the boss's son and doing things that they couldn't do or would, would felt they would be restricted. But because he's the boss's son, there was the perception that he got special treatment. Was there anyone uh, actively campaigning backstage against putting the Intercontinental belt on China? No, not that I remember. Do you think that she got that spot because of Triple H's influence? I think that that was simply a case of wearing Vince down, wearing all of us down. She did. She did. did, She did it. Oh my God. She did it. She wore me the hell out. Um, every chance she got just, she felt that she should be competing with the guys. She felt that she should be competing for the WWF championship. Clear this up at this point where triple H and Stephanie hooking up. I have no idea, but there were no rumors at this time that they were at all. Uh, coming out of SummerSlam, it looked as if Steve Blackman was being set up for a big push. Why was he never featured in a more prominent role? I don't think that Steve was ever being set up for a big push. Steve was a guy that was on the card and had an opportunity here with Shane. It was an opportunity to elevate Steve a little bit, but there was no big push plan. Just trying to get everybody's character out there. We saw uh, Trish Stratus smash glass over China's head. Then we saw glass be smashed into a car on Jim Ross. Uh, We saw glass smashed on Lawler. Then we saw glass smashed on Taz. Where did you get all the, the glass here? And whose idea was this glass? It seems like somebody was obsessed with it. Smash, smash glass are us. I knew that. It, it's where we got it. Sometimes you reach a point where, hey, that's a good gimmick. How about if we do this? 
and then it just becomes over and over and gets overused. And this is a perfect example of shit getting overused. What would Vince McMahon sound like pitching the stink face match with Cat and Terry? God damn, I want you to get your ass in there and get it as stinky as you can and stick it right in her nose. But then I want you to wiggle. Yeah. You know, Terry, your titties look kind of chocolatey. I like it. My goodness, this is what we're doing now. Hey, join the conversation, man. We want you to like us on Facebook. We've got some cool stuff coming up over at facebook.com slash something to wrestle. And how about this? Next week's poll is on Facebook. And next week is our one-year anniversary, Bruce. Can you believe you've put up with me doing this shit for a whole year now? God, no. This is my longest-running podcast ever. Uh, We wanted to do something (laughs) special, uh, so we held a contest on Facebook where you had to like and share a post to enter. The winner would receive a couple of Something to Wrestle koozies that you can only get at our live shows, a couple of Something to Wrestle t-shirts, and you get to pick an entire poll. And the poll we're about to go over for next week is that winner's poll. Thanks for entering, and thanks for hot-shotting the whole territory with your selections this week, AJ. Uh, Before we get to that, we should remind you that next week, this show will drop at noon Eastern at somethingtowrestle.com. That's the new spot. You can catch all of our shows going forward, somethingtowrestle.com. It'll be loaded there first. We get lots of questions. Why isn't it up on Stitcher yet? Why isn't it up on Google Play yet? We don't control where it goes and when it goes. I can only tell you when we post it and we release it to those third parties. The very first place to get it each and every week at noon Eastern on Friday is somethingtowrestle.com. Uh, and you can actually watch us record the show next Thursday night on our Facebook page. You guys have asked for this for a long time. When will there be a video version? I want to see Bruce do the impressions. Well, you can do that without coming to a live show. Of course, we still want you to come to a live show and encourage you to come see us. You can see all of our upcoming live events at boxofgimmicks.com. But we're doing a live show on Facebook Live next Thursday night. Now, if you're used to listening to this on your podcast app, you still can next Friday at noon Eastern business as usual. But if you want to join the fun and actually be here live with us when we're doing it, it's next Thursday. Go like us on Facebook right now, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. That's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. You'll be able to vote in the poll, ask questions about whatever wins, and then watch us do the whole show early. On Thursday at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Here we go, Bruce. Are you ready? I'm ready. Before we get going, I should mention a lot of these clips of stuff we're going to cover today are on youtube.com. And the place I go for wrestling YouTube clips is youtube.com forward slash GoPro Wrestling. They help us out with the research on the show, and you'll love their stuff. It's youtube.com forward slash GoPro Wrestling. And these four poll topics are from a poll winner or a contest winner, rather, over on Facebook. Uh, Poll topic number one, Shawn Michaels' comeback in 2002. One of our most requested topics. I was saving it for something special. Fuck me. We're hot shot in the territory. Uh, Who reached out to him? Whose idea was it to come back? Uh, How does he come back as part of the NWO? What leads to his match at SummerSlam 02 with Triple H? Was that supposed to be a one-off? Because it lasts for like eight years. We'll cover Shawn Michaels 02. 
Of course, we're going to wind up in Madison Square Garden at Survivor Series where he wins the big gold belt in those doo-doo brown tights. Uh, what else interesting do you think we might talk about for Shawn Michaels in 2002, Bruce? Well, I personally think that it was some of the best work of his entire career and just the whole decision-making process. But not only that, we'll even get into the wonderful meeting that we had one time where I suggested Sean maybe have another match and the um, chastising I got after the fact. But we'll, we'll only talk about that if Shawn Michaels come back in 2002 wins. But the second to- poll topic is Austin, Austin Rock, Rock 3. 3 from WrestleMania 19. You've got all the behind-the-scenes circumstances leading up to this one. We've already covered Austin walking out. We've got Rock coming back from Hollywood so he can do as Austin can take his ball and go home promo. Then you've got Austin's return. Austin's got some real-life personal stuff going on. Now he's got some health stuff going on. And they decide this is the last match. But who knew it was his last match? And when did they know? And what went down in Austin Rock 3? Clearly one of the biggest, if not the biggest trilogy in the history of wrestling. Wouldn't you agree, Bruce? It is the biggest trilogy in the history of wrestling. And then you go to poll topic number three. And and I, I, can I handle this one? Yeah. Paul Heyman in the WWE. From the closure of ECW to the conversations that took place to bring him into the WWE soon after ECW closed. Or did those conversations take place before ECW closed? Whose feathers did he ruffled on commentary? Whose feathers did he ruffle backstage? Whose feathers did he ruffle in production meetings and in writer meetings? How the rest of the writing team dealt with Paul Heyman. We'll even go back and we'll tell some stories of Paul Heyman pre-ECW. And for you, Conrad, sir, we will talk about Heyman's place of residence until roughly 2004, 2005, sir. Last but certainly not least, maybe one of our most requested topics of all time, Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels, 2005. They had a very famous match at SummerSlam. They involved the whole Larry King buildup. And then the actual match itself, the negotiations, and the ridiculousness that took place who pitched the idea how was it received how did these guys work with each other what were the tempers like uh it's something to see if you haven't seen this one in a while go watch SummerSlam 2005 um we'll find out who would agree with what and what didn't work for me brother if poll topic number four was get Shawn Michaels spray tan for the Larry King segment so poll topic number one, Shawn Michaels come back in 2002. We've never put Shawn Michaels as a solo act on the poll. Here he is, thanks to AJ. Austin Rock 3, Austin's last match in the WWE from WrestleMania 19. Uh, Paul Heyman in WWE, one of the more controversial figures, figures in wrestling history. People loved our Vince Russo. People loved our Jim Cornette. People loved our Eric Bischoff. Well, here is Paul Heyman in the WWE. And if you want controversy, man, here it is. It doesn't get more behind-the-scenes controversial than Hogan Michaels at SummerSlam 2005. It's a barn burner of a poll, 
Something's going to win. Something's going to be awesome next week right here on Something to Wrestle. You can watch us tape it live and join us in the fun at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Uh, and you can also vote on this week's poll and ask questions. So join the conversation, cruise on over to Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. We haven't forgot about you, Twitter. You can always go ahead and keep up with what's going on on the show at Pritchard Show. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. Keep up with all the brand new shows, kids. Something to wrestle.com. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.